Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show, broadcasting on CITR Radio 101.9 FM from the unceded Musqueam Territory at the University of beautiful British Columbia. I'm Michael McCall. And I'm Zachary Adam Eisenhower. And we're joined by a special guest this week. For the first couple of parts of the show, we're going to introduce you to somebody that I'm sure many of you will have read on the AFTN website. He does our match previews. He's a student up at UBC. He presents a, a show on CITR Radio as well. Welcome to the AFTN Soccer Show, Jake McGrail. Uh, thank you for having me. We've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, Jake, and I don't know why I haven't actually had you on before now, but we've got you on now. You're going to be with us for the, the first couple of parts as we, we chat MLS. But for, for anyone that is unfamiliar with your work and who you are, just tell the listeners a, a little bit about yourself. Uh, all right. Well, I'm a student at the university, as you call it, of beautiful British Columbia. I'm in my fourth year English major. Uh, I am part of the sports collective at CITR Radio, which covers UBC Thunderbirds athletics specifically. And I've become the coordinator of uh, the collective this school year, which has been a lot of fun, even though the athletics have been canceled. I have started writing match previews for the AFTN site back the beginning of the 2018 season, which I had to double check that. It was actually oh, wow. further back than I remember. I would have yeah. guessed 2019, but <laughs> it's been a few years. And uh, I, I, I felt I should bring one fun Whitecaps related fact to the table. So... Uh, I was one of the younger people who carried the flags onto the field for the home playoff match against Portland back in 2015. So that was the one time that I was actually on the pitch at BC Place. Uh, that was a game we all remember, but not for <laughs> the, the right reasons. But you at least remember it for some positive reasons. So yeah, that was a... really that was the best part of the for the of the night for me. Well, I... We we had, we had a tipo that night. That was meaningful to me because we made it with the players' wives, but. Yeah, you're right. That, that was the 2-0 loss after the goalless draw away in Portland where Gershon Kofi played the 10. Yeah, that was Kikuta's yeah. injury game. And right. yeah, but yeah, it's a, love, it's a lovely memory to have from that. I never got to do anything like that as a, as a, a kid or a youth. And it's like, I kind of wish I had. It would have been just something to look back on and go, oh, that'd been fantastic. I mean, that's one thing the Whitecaps do really well, I think, is like integrate kids and stuff into the, the community and... and do all that stuff but I mean we've got you on the show in a week where 
there hasn't actually been much Whitecap stuff to talk about. So, yeah, we thought, who is good at having shows when there's not a lot to talk about? The guy that's doing all the, the college stuff when there's not much to talk about. <laughs> so let, let's get Jake on the show for this. But th- there is some stuff in Whitecaps land that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about MLS stuff in general. Next part, we're going to focus uh, a bit on Montreal because they've been very, very busy this off-season and there's a lot of things happening out east with that. But for this part, we're going to kick things off with the Whitecaps. Before doing this show, I wanted to, I went on the Whitecaps website and I was, I was curious because I thought it seems an even quieter week than usual. I wanted to know how many news stories were actually on the, the official Whitecaps site this week. Seven. In the last seven days since we did the show, there's been seven news stories. Out of those, one is on the Canadian women's national team. One was on the MLS transfer window dates. And one was a a Black History Month video with, with Theo Bear that, that was excellent. Then there there was two stories on the, the new chief revenue officer and very little on the actual team, which is unsurprising because very little is happening with the actual team just now. But there is a new signing of sorts. He's already known to, to be at the club, but it's now official that he's signed an MLS deal. And that is first-round draft pick, Javain Brown. The Jamaican under... Well, I was going to say under 21. He's he's a 21-year-old Jamaican right-back. He signed off his own accord in the MLS deal, just to to get my old joke in that I have to do with Jamaican players. An MLS deal that's taken him through to club options to 2024. And by all accounts, he is a great prospect He's been capped at senior level for Jamaica, as we talked about. He's been capped at youth levels for, for Jamaica. And he had signed a USL deal with Atlanta too. And if the Whitecaps hadn't offered him an MLS deal, he could have just walked and gone and played USL this season. So I think all in all, it's it's been a good addition. Let, let's kick things off with, with Jake as our newbie on the show. It's hard to to know much about him because we're only going on videos and what we read and and college scouting and stuff like that. I'm genuinely excited by both him and Egbo and and what they can offer the team this season. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on NCAA (laughs) soccer players, but really the part that stood out for me was I thought it was interesting that both the draft picks they signed, Brown and Egbo, needed international spots Mm. so that must show some level of confidence within the organization that there is something that they're going to be able to get out of the two of them because burning two international spots on rookies could be a bit of a gamble if they just don't end up being played at all it's a huge gamble and it's something you don't see a lot of clubs doing especially because uh how tight a commodity the international slots are probably even more so now with the, the new young player rule that's coming in that, that we'll, we'll come to in, in a little bit as well. But that's a very good point. They, they both take up international sports. There's now just one free slot internationally left on the, the Whitecaps roster and you have to think that's going to be going to this number 10 if we ever do get the number 10, Zach. But, I mean, Brown, capped with Jamaica, then came over, went the college route. He does seem a good prospect. It's a guy now that... We've got somebody that can challenge Jake Nerwinski. I think Jake has needed that to help maybe take his game to the next level. And 
I'm pretty sure we're going to see him called on and used early on in this season, I think, where the game's going to be coming thick and fast. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot in the past about how uh, Jake uh, is a serviceable MLS player, but he is not a, a top-tier right-back in MLS, at least to this point. And yeah, they either need to improve um, or they need to have other options. And it appears that Brown is going to be that other option or or at least one of them. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, like we've talked about before, and like Jake said, yeah, I, I, I'm also not an expert on Brown's NCAA <laughs> career. Um, seen some of the highlights and stuff or whatever. But um, the thing that stands out to me goes back to how we talked about this when they were drafted of how people should probably have low expectations of draft picks. Um, now, now the Whitecaps have signed both of uh, both of these players or two of the, two of their four draft picks. Um, it's really, really interesting. And I, I, I wonder what's, I wonder how this is going to play out because again, I, as you go into the season, I, I think you have to have low expectations for these these players, and it already feels like both of them have quite significant roles to play in the team. Mm. And that is shown by the fact that they've signed them before actually having, having being in a camp or being in a yeah. preseason or anything like that. So I'm it's got it's got to be one thing. One I think one of two things is probably going to happen. They're going to look. Uh, like really good, like DeSantis and the crew are going to look really good because they signed them early and they got them done and they contribute, or they're going to look maybe a little bit foolish that they signed uh, draft picks so quickly. Um, and then ultimately, I think if it is, if it does end up in that latter category, it's just going to, they're going to use the pandemic to say, Hey, we had to build a squad and, and move forward and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm apprehensive about, about the signing of both players before they've been with uh, the squad. I think some of what you mentioned with the people looking at them already as these new, big new additions coming in is just because there really haven't been any other new additions. So when you're looking at how is the team being improved, I believe it's only it's only four currently new additions. Those two, Saicedo and then Evan Newton, but a backup mm-hmm. goalie isn't really going to be doing much. So if you're looking at who's going to be coming in doing new stuff, potentially adding more, you have to look at those two. Yeah, but then when you break down those four, like three of them you would think of as as being backups, but those three backups are all probably, especially Egbo and Newton, going to get considerate min- considerable minutes if Canada's international players are away and the other guys are away in international duty. But yet to sign them before actually seeing them in the environment and kick a ball, I mean, part of that is you're, you're taking a little bit of the motivation away from them at training camp, just in a, in a small regard, because it's like they've got their deal now, they're not having to play to earn a deal. Obviously, they're playing to, to earn a, a place in either the start in 11 or the game day 18 or 20 or whatever it's going to be now. It's, it's unusual. It makes me think, though, are they signing these guys because they know that they're here and they've got them? And they're struggling to get other players to come in because of quarantine, because of the pandemic rules and everything that's going on. Are they thinking, look, we just need to get some guys on the roster because we're going to be short of players. These guys are here. Let's get them now. Well, that's how it, that's what it feels like. And that again, and we live in the different times, as you as you would say, Michael. We, um, but these uh, des- desperate or desperation, you know. 
might be uh, I mean too unkind to them, yeah. but it, it it is it it's got to be at least it might and it, again it might pay off and they might look great and that's okay, but it, in the moment it it feels a little awkward. I do think the Whitecaps recruiting pitch at the moment is not as good as it usually is, given all the uncertainty, even just where they're going to be playing. Like if you're trying to recruit someone and you're telling them, we're not actually going to be playing in Vancouver. We don't know where we're going to be playing, where you're going to have to move, what the restrictions are going to be like, whether you can bring your family with you, all that kind of stuff that makes it even more difficult to try and recruit people right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we spoke with Axel on last week's show. It's a thankless task that, that they've got just now. So if you've got a couple of young guys that look good potential, get get them signed up and just see how it goes. You've got a chance to, to make further additions in the summer. Hopefully by then you'll know if there's going to be any games in Canada and everything like that. Hopefully some more additions will be coming, but I guess we'll have to kind of wait and see about that. There was another addition, though, this week. It was in the front office. Now, Peter Hicken had wrote on the AFT Insight uh, an article on, like, MLS Moneyball. And it looks like the Caps are going all in on that because they've they've raided the Oakland Athletics baseball team, appointed Wade Martin as chief revenue officer. He'll also kind of play a role in the senior sort of leadership group of the club as well. Now, when he was at Oakland, he was tasked with growing all revenue streams, including corporate partnerships, hospitality, premium experiences, broadcast and digital media. Now, a lot of that just now, if he's tasked with that at Vancouver, that's a tough thing to come to a new gig when you're, you can't get people to come to the stadium and to try and grow revenue. So, I mean, that, I mean, they must have offered something as a good incentive or he liked the challenge because that, to give up a job where you've got all those existing partnerships, to come to a foreign country during a pandemic where you're not hosting home games and being tasked to grow revenue, that, that's, a, that's a tall order. I mean, the Whitecaps hiring someone from the Oakland A's really allows the jokes to write themselves, at least yeah. in terms of the ownership spending. <laughs> Sadly, it does. I'm sure Zach will comment on that. Well, I, th- I don't know if it was you or, or Steve who was messaging me about... Oh, it was Steve. It Steve was messaged Steve, us. Yeah. And Steve said, yeah, look, they're, they hired a guy from an organization that's known for... Uh, what's the language Steve used? Not penny-pinching, but who, who are known to not pay their players uh, when they become good not to pay their players well. So, yeah. Yeah. But by all accounts, what he did at Oakland was excellent. And he really grew the the revenue there and he had three years there and he did an excellent job. So excited to, to see what he does really in terms of corporate partnerships. It'd be nice if the first thing he did was get rid of Bell and get somebody else in and in light of everything that's been happening with Bell, but don't really see that happening for the foreseeable future. There's no word as to whether he can play the number 10 role, but fingers crossed that he could be called upon if needed that could be our big international signing that, that we've brought in to, to fill that number 10 slot. Because there's still no movement on that. Now, on last week's show, Axel basically said, look, we're still in talks with Otavio. He might still come and things might change in the summer. That might 
but also more just wishful thinking on Axel's part because Otavio seems to have made it quite known he doesn't really seem to have any interest in coming to MLS. But then MDS was speaking to Portuguese media this week and also was waxing lyrical about Otavio as well. Whether they're just wanting to put the feelers out there to let it get back to the player and the agent that, look, we really love you, we really covet you, we really want you to, to come here... I'm hoping they're not putting all their eggs in that basket because it's it's not it's not looking great. And then if he is the guy that they're going to end up getting, he's not coming to July probably. Yeah, the whole the whole poten- the whole potential around this number ten, it, it seems like it's playing out the way it has in the past, which is just really sad. I remember earlier in this offseason, Michael, you were so excited after conversations with individuals and mm. uh, with things you were hearing and mm. with uh, uh, people being linked, <laughs> like there was optimism. I, I think you did tell me to look at history. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that to say I told you so, but it, at, in the moment it's, it all, it all, this also does not feel, feel great. Right. And again, pandemic, there's, there's legitimate reasons, but that, I mean, you, you have to get, you have to get something done of quality and i think mark DeSantos is still still waiting for that to get done right for that to be able to really shape and define his 2021 squad i mean it's the never-ending cycle really the the white caps and the mythical number 10 that'll solve well not all the problems but solve a lot of problems at least offensively so there's, there's not really much you can add at this point besides yeah. just agreeing that, yes, there is a big hole where you would like to see a big time designated player. And unless you have that next level caliber type player, I mean, preferably more than one, but as things stand, we would be very happy to at least have one. Without that, there's kind of a ceiling on the team. Yeah. I mean, there, there certainly is. And like, Obviously, Jake, this is the first time you've been on the show, so we've we've not had a chance to to speak to you about your your thoughts on the team. You've you've made comments about the the team last year in your match previews and and various things like that. So let, let's just get your thoughts on well, first of all, last season. What what did you make of the team? Obviously, it's a season that was in three parts, really. Towards the end, down the stretch, they showed glimpses, and that's what Axel and MDS are, are holding up. Those last six games where they had four wins and they didn't let in many goals and stuff like that, that that is basically the start of what we're expected to see now in 2021. But, I mean, what, what did you make of what you saw last season? I mean, when I went back a little bit earlier, look at the standings, look at the schedule, the individual games, just to refresh my mind, what I saw was actually a little bit better than what I'd remembered. I feel like it's really the the two losses to Toronto back in August when they were just absolutely killed that just kind of got mm-hmm. seared into my mind. <laughs> and it, it never really shook that because they, they also had that um, the run at the start of the U.S. portion of the final schedule where they were also just getting waxed by like LAFC Seattle, which then yeah. led into the, the run of improved form. But it's hard to shake that stuff like considering how similar it was to 2019 as well in the super rough summer that the the club went through then. But I mean, I guess you can hold on to the, the improvement they showed at the end of the season. I'm not sure how much of that is transferable over and how 
likely it is to revert back into what it was like earlier in the season last year. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing is, other clubs are going to have improved over the off-season. And right now, we have not really seen a big improvement in that Vancouver roster. Tied in with that, if anything, it's got worse because Freddie Montero's moved on and he was a guy that played such a prominent role in, in a number of those, those good games and good performances and the link-up play with Dahomey and Kava and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, watching the off-season play out, and obviously there is genuinely reasons that things haven't been been done from the CBA and not even knowing if the league was starting to everything around quarantine now, we're getting players back here and then it's like where they're going to be starting the season. All that stuff has made it difficult and it's it's not an excuse, it it is a reality. But as you've sat and watched this off-season play out in Vancouver, elsewhere, what have you made of things? I mean, as you mentioned, lost Montero, that's the biggest loss from last season's team. Also lost now uh, Milinkovic, which was kind of expected, and Bush, which was also kind of expected. And we mentioned earlier, there's three or four new players that have come in, but really it's basically the same team as last year. So there are pieces there. And as mentioned, they showed some life at the end of last season. But if you look up and down the roster page, I'm just thinking, okay, like, I don't, I don't think there's anyone that's going to be looking at the Whitecaps roster that they have as things stand right now and getting, like, really excited about the, the potential of the team to be more than, like, fringe playoff, maybe. So, so Jake, uh, how, how do, where we are right now, how does it make you feel about the comments as, as, this, as the season was ending? You had comments, I believe, from both the head coach and Axel saying – we're, we're we're not that far away. We're not that far away from where we want to be. Uh, if it was just for, you know, kind of like not missing the guys in Orlando and a couple of things not going away, we would have been where we wanted to be. Do, like, do you have confidence in like, in, in where they're at right now with the very little amount that they've done and the failure to br- do the one significant thing that they said they were going to do and wanted to do? Well, I guess it's the confidence in terms of what exactly are you expecting out of this team because if you're if you're thinking like how how confident are you that they're going to be able to get home field advantage in the playoffs not not confident as things stand uh i'd say i'm confident they won't be like absolute basement i'm calm i'm somewhat confident that they might be able to to make the playoffs as things stand but there there's a lot more room to go back down than yeah. a lot further up. I've got low expectations right now. Now, obviously, a, a lot can change. I just feel these first couple of months are going to be very, mm-hmm. very tough. Yeah, I'm, and... I'm definitely very concerned about the possibility of a bad start to the season. Yeah. Your interview with Axel last week really emphasized all the issues the club is facing with players are going to be missing a lot of training camp whole problem relocating the everyone everything to the u.s and as a big fan of the toronto raptors who are having to play this whole nba season out of tampa bay i have already watched this type of thing play out from a from a fan perspective and they got off to a terrible start to the season it was the lost eight of their first 10 i believe they only just got back to 500 after like 20 more games some of that has to do with the roster. Like I didn't expect going to the season 
they would be amazing, but I also didn't expect them to get off to as poor of a start as they did. And I think the whole setup of never really being at home and having to deal with all of this off the court, off the field stuff is a massive deal. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would be like. I think I, if, if it was me, I'd be unsettled as well for a good few weeks or, or months. And it does explain why at the start of the American thing last year, the, the White Caps did struggle off the gate before they started to get a run of games at home in, in Portland and then just get used to, to everything that, that was going on. Right now, the way that the roster looks, it's a scary thought. Obviously, the schedule's still to come out. Fingers crossed. I, I kind of want us to start with games out against Eastern teams, really, just because if we're dropping points in the early games, it's not going to Western Conference rivals. But at the same time, I don't know that I want the team flying around all over the US either Dur during this time. It's, uh, I don't know. But I mean, training camp is set to get underway for all teams on March 1st. So next Monday, basically. Now, the new quarantine rules come into effect in Canada from this Monday, which is three days in a hotel, then the rest of your time, if you test negative, quarantining at home. So by that measure, you're kind of hoping and expecting that all the Whitecaps players will be back in Vancouver by Sunday, the 21st at the latest, which will be the day that this show comes out. Now, Evan Newton, or we're recording this show on Saturday the 20th, so Evan Newton on Instagram shared something today that he's flying home, he's flying to Vancouver today. So he's fine. Ali Adnan shared uh, a photo of him in a swimming pool that certainly did not look like Vancouver. Now, it could be an old photo. He might be flying home on Sunday. But I'm thinking if he isn't flying home on Sunday, then we've got issues then with his quarantine. And I haven't stopped the rest of the players. I leave that to our good friend Har. She's been doing that and just letting me know what, what's been happening on Instagram with all the players. So she sent me those today. But... I mean, that, that's a genuine concern. How many players are you going to have in camp? Then you're going to lose a big chunk of them because of international games at, at the end of the month. The MLS announced that the transfer window now is going to run from March 10th to June 1st. So there's still a lot of time to, to get business done. And it might be a case that there's going to be players that just want to wait to see what's happening to see how the Whitecaps set up is, if it is in Utah, what that's like, get feedback about all of that. But, I mean, overall, the, the, there's a lot of concerns there. And me, best case scenario is they just hang in as best as they can for the first two months and then hopefully move on from that. Yeah, that's not obviously the, the way you want to go into any season, uh, regardless if it's in a regular one. But it um, it also it also doesn't seem like that sits well like with the roster. You know what I mean? It's not like it doesn't feel like they're gonna be able to do that. The flip side of the coin, the other, the maybe more uh, positive perspective is MLS is a league that we've seen uh, a number of teams over the years do that. Have a really really poor beginning, and mm -hmm. then go go out and um, do well, get a good playoff seed, even home advantage, and, yep. and win things. Uh, Seattle's done it a few times. I was, was going to say, Michael's favorite team to celebrate with uh, is known for doing that. So, yeah, I, but I don't, I can't, it's hard to imagine Vancouver doing that. 
One thing which could shake up a number of teams, and we'll just finish this part with a, just a little chat about this, is the, the MLS young player rule, which in typical MLS fashion hasn't been finalised yet, as we're like five or six weeks away from, from the start of the season. Sam Steschel on The Athletic had a, an interesting breakdown of it. Um, and this is just things that sources at club have told him. So n- none of this is 100% official, but a number of clubs are confirming that this is likely what it's going to be, with the caveat that things could still change over the the next six weeks. This young player rule that's coming in, it does seem to be the next big, important rule in MLS. You had the designated player rule that came in after Beckham. Then there's the whole TAM and then even GAM stuff, but basically the TAM stuff, the TAM player, that was probably the next big thing. And then this is taking it to the next level to try and attract young talent to the league with a view of selling it on, making lots of money, etc., etc. What the Whitecaps are always talking about what they want to do. Brief breakdown of what the young player rule is. Players still have to be under the age of 23 at the end of their first season in the league. So you can't sign uh, a 22-year-old that's going to turn 23 during the season. If they stay in the league until they're 25, they will keep this young player's tag. So they'll be allowed to be classed as a young player if they're in the the league for, say, three seasons or whatever. Salary-wise, it could range from anything from... The feeling is the lower end will be one fifty to two hundred thousand, but with a ceiling of six hundred and twelve thousand five hundred, that will be their maximum salary. I've got a feeling. Now, this is where things get a little weird. Who can clubs sign? So, if clubs currently have three designated players over the age of twenty-three, they're only allowed to add one young player signing. If clubs have a designated player under the age of 23, they can have three young player signings. Clubs, though, can buy down their designated players using TAM to get them off the designated player rule so that they can then add extra young players. Now, if you look at the the white caps, we've only got two designated players right now, but assuming the third comes in, the number 10, you have to think he's going to be over the age of of 23. So that would be three designated players over the age of 23. So if the Caps don't buy any of them down with Tam, then you've got the problem of they can only have one young player, which might be Saicedo for all we know, because we're not 100% sure what he's fitting into. So right now they've got Kava, who's 28, 53-year-old Ali Adnan, and then however old the the number 10 player is. Homegrowns and draft picks can also sign to a a young player deal, and current players can be grandfathered to to kind of fit it if you've got a talented young player under the age of 23. I, I think it was MDS when I spoke to him a few weeks back said, if you look around the league though, how many actual young players are performing? You've got Rossi and maybe one or two others, but on the whole, these aren't the guys that's your top performers in the league. And then I broke it down, and you look at the top goal scorers and the top assist getters, and they're all in the, the like high 20s, low 30 age range. 
I think this is likely to affect how clubs now sign designated players. So they're either going to go big on the older guys, TFC kind of route, I guess, and go with that and just settle for one young designated player or one young player, whatever you want to call this. Or you might have clubs like the Whitecaps that are trying to put all their, their eggs in the young player basket and try and get all this young talent in the hope that one of them kind of rises to the occasion. Now, that's a lot of info I've just put out there for us to quickly unpack, but let, let's start with Jake. Well, MLS just continues to outdo itself, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as <laughs> I explained way... that, I'm thinking, man, I'm making this sound really complicated. Is it really complicated? No, it is really complicated. I mean, there, it, obviously, it might be a little less complicated once they actually get a full deal with this thing hammered out, but... It's it, it's very funny how many exceptions they're trying to cram in without fundamentally changing the whole salary cap structure, which yeah. I guess I get. But as as the the right things are going, at a certain point, how how much how many more things can you add before you just have to fully revamp, which yeah would end up probably in a labor dispute, <laughs> and we yeah. luckily we don't have many of those in MLS. There's never been one in their 32 years come 2027. But no, man, that's very true. It's like the whole salary structure, it feels it needs blown up. And you're bringing this in, which is a bit convoluted in places. It it has the feeling, Zach, of them saying, what would the LA Galaxy like in this case? Let's write the new rule around what the Galaxy would do. Yeah, maybe too. I mean, yeah, they're, they're known for... Uh, crafting rules based on certain clubs needs for sure um but it also feels like this is also in, in some sense catering to two things one clubs that don't want to spend on what i would call actual designated players like over 1.5 million players um but it also i think plays into the fact that they know that one of the things that make them sustainable and meaningful for owners is to discover young talent that they can sell on for, for, for good value. And so that's what I see in this the most is those two things. It allows you to, uh, you know, show your supporters that you have ambition by signing these new young DPs essentially. Uh, and at the same time, you, uh, you make the league better off by mining the earth, for young, talented players that you can make profit on. That, I did think I did think one thing you said, Michael, was pretty interesting about the average or the, the range of ages of people who actually contribute at a high level in MLS because theoretically you could have four 21 or 22-year-olds in filling these young player slots combined with the regular designated players, but how many teams are actually going to be spending that money on three or four 21 and 22 year olds and throwing them all out there in the starting lineup and be like, just go get it. Mm. It's, a, it's a gamble. It's like, would you rather spend money on like n nothing's ever guaranteed in MLS because players struggle to settle and there's lots of different anomalies in this league to other leagues. But on the whole, like if you go out and make a splash on say, like a Zlatan or a Drogba or like even with what TFC have done with, with like a Bradley, you know what you're getting. 
you're taking a bit of a gamble if you if you decide that you want to to go down the route of having these three young players at the expense of having three top end designated players. If if it was me, I'd rather be a club that had three good quality older designated players. And you, you take a, a punt on one of these guys under this new official rule, and you, there's nothing to stop you bringing other guys in and just have to manage the salary cap accordingly. But but that's the thing, Michael. I, do, I think many of the owners, sorry, a significant number of the owners, don't want to, they feel like there's a risk on those old players as well, as I think is fair. Well, there is, because you, you could put, like, you could, you could have signed a Zlatan that got injured for the whole season in the first game, or you could sign a Chicharito who is crap for the whole season, basically. He's motivated for this year, though. I read an article, so. So, so I think I think what the medium or the the not the medium the, the place that the owners have, have settled on this is saying, look, okay, we know you. We need to have some way to we need to have some way to show that we're 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 bringing in good young players, and they're I think they're they're going with this approach as opposed to the old the older established you know yeah Zlatans, Wayne Rooney's those kind of players. I think there, there's a, there's a significant shift for many of the clubs in the league to focus on unearthing you know the next Alfonso Davies kind of kind of thing. Yeah, I think that is the route. And like clubs like Atlanta will probably thrive under this system because they've been fantastic. The way that they've been operating, LA Dwell is another team that seem to, to get these good young talents. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see how the Whitecaps uh, adapt to this, and we'll we'll see if this does change the league we might not see a, a big change in the initial season maybe even the first couple of seasons but I think long term this could be a an interesting one will it make MLS a, a league of choice for some of these young guys on those salaries I don't think so but I guess we'll have to to wait and see but that's it for this part we talked about there not being too much activity in Whitecaps land well in the next part we're going to head over to the east of Canada and to a team that has certainly been very active this off-season, the Club Foots of Montreal. We'll be back chatting about that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part is a former Artist of the Month, English band Idols, with a song from their debut album, 2017's Brutalism. That was a song called Exeter. Has the lyrics, 
Will something happen? Will something ever happen? And I think that's maybe what we're feeling a, a little bit about with the, the Whitecaps search for a number 10 just now. But while the Whitecaps have been quiet this off-season, the same can certainly not be said for our Eastern Conference foes, Club de Foot Montreal, CF Montreal, the former Impact Montreal. I'm just going to call them Montreal. I think CF Montreal's got a nice drink to it. I might go with that. They've been very busy this off-season. They've rebranded. They've brought out a, a new jersey covered in cats' assholes. They've signed 11 players this off-season. They've added some other loan signings, two other loan signings this year alone, two others at the end of last year, although renewing loans in that case. Um, they might be about to lose their head coach to an English championship side just before this season starts. So much to talk about, and we're we're going to delve into a bit of Montreal in this part. I'm wanting to kind of do a bit more coverage of some of the non-Whitecaps teams this season. I'm going to jump on a lot more conference calls and just have some parts dedicated to other teams just to kind of expand the knowledge, expand the coverage that we're doing. So we're going to talk Montreal this week. And let's start, we haven't got Jake's thoughts on this. What did you make of the whole rebrand? Gone are the impact, it's CF Montreal, or whatever you want to call them. Do you like it? Do you feel... I guess they're going for the younger demographics So someone like yourself. I know you're obviously not from Montreal, but does it scream, like, modern to you? I was surprised when I saw that they were going the route of a full rebrand. I mean, I was never a huge fan of Impact, specifically, as the team name. But I do think that the rebrand is a bit of a step back just because I don't see the point of replacing something that is unique in a sense with something that's a lot more generic Mm. like this one is. Yeah, it's been a strange one. It's still really not sitting well with the fans. There were seven or eight supporters groups had combined to issue a thing urging them to go back. There's no way they're going (laughs) back on this now. I mean, they could maybe have some impact retro jerseys or something down, down the line, but this is set now. This is not going to change. In your first question, when you asked me, like, do you think this is more of a modern look? I don't know if that's something that like should be the most desired thing, at least here from Montreal for Vancouver, whatever. Like, I feel like MLS specifically just has to embrace the weirdness mm-hmm. that comes with the league in, in a way with the way it's set up. We've mentioned all the convoluted roster rules, the fact that we're in North America And there's that North American sports culture that's just naturally baked into most people here. The fact that you can never point to an MLS match, you'll never be able to point to an MLS match and say, this is the most polished, top quality soccer that you can find on TV, just because you're never going to be able to compete with other leagues in the world directly in that regard. So I feel like the teams need to embrace being MLS teams. And I think that the, the unique team names are part of that, part of that identity of who the league is and uh, who, who the, the teams are. That That's actually spot on because, like, when I speak to friends back in Scotland 
a lot of them that that have interest in MLS, and there's not many because some of them just can't be bothered with it, mainly because of times and and things as well. But the games are all shown in Sky Sports, and there is good coverage over there, and with big name players coming over, English players coming over, stuff like that, it, it gets a lot more attention now. But they love the uniqueness, they love the weirdness. Some of the really old MLS jerseys, we've been talking about this on our, our WhatsApp chat that I've got with, with East Fife fans, they love that weirdness of it. They like the the uniqueness, the different names, The it, it feels like a foreign league, but in a nice way. And I think then people here try to cater too much to be accepted in Europe. It's like, oh, we want to be taken seriously because they still think that we're a joke and various things like that. So we're we're going to try and drop the the names. And if you look at the teams that's come in, Atlanta United, FC Cincinnati, uh, Austin, like things like that, they're just going for just plain names, really, and. I don't, yeah, embrace it. I, I think that's what they should do. Did, did you get a chance to look at the, the new kit at all? And if you did, mm-hmm. what did you make of it? I mean, I think it's just pretty much like a safe play, really. Not not very offensive, not anything special. I'm not as much of a fan of plain, solid colored jerseys in general, but you could do worse than black with blue trim. I, I think... I would have liked it more personally if the if the main color was more of a blue, even if it was a darker blue mm. as opposed to the the black or gray. But really, the the whole thing is is just like okay. <laughs> yeah, I I love a black kit. I've got to say that, but blue is what I associate with Montreal, and I guess they're they're veering a little bit away from that now. Does that Zach as well with going with that black kit? I mean, what did you make of it? It's not, it's not horrible. Um, but it doesn't... It's going to take a bit of getting used to that this is Montreal's new identity, basically. Yeah, which is unfortunate because the the the, the blue and black and, and the white and blue and the gray and stuff they've done in MLS has actually been really good, especially the blue and black stripes. Um, I can understand why when you own a football club in Montreal and you own a football club in Bologna... You might not want one of them. You might not want the club of Montreal to look like you know one of the bigger clubs in in the in Serie A where, where Bologna plays. So I can under, I can understand that, but mm. they did have a really nice. Uh, I thought they had one of the nicer kits in MLS over the years. That we, uh, you know I think we talked about that previously, Michael. But yeah, this new one it's not it's not horrible. It's not um, amazing. Yeah, it, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think you should keep calling them the impact, Michael. I mean, you were I, there. I probably will. I, I w- I've been on a couple of Montreal calls the last couple of weeks, and a couple of the journalists have talked about the impact, and then said immediately corrected themselves, going, oh, "I'm still trying to get used to this." Yeah, but here, I mean, you guys sort of kind of touched on this. The, the thing that the thing one of the things in this whole conversation is this: when you are when you start a football league. You know, like we're seeing with CPL now, like MLS 20, whatever, six years ago or whatever it is now. Um, one of the things you're, you you don't have that you long for and that you, you connect to in any way you can, any meaningful way you can, is history. And it's just so strange that they've just stripped away that history uh, with one fell swoop. 
and they don't want to be attached attached to the, to the name of it. And and we talked about the pros and cons before, but it, it just it's so weird. It is so weird. And yeah, I, I've been in touch. Like the, the supporters in Montreal have been in touch. One of the guys who founded the Ultras has reached out and said, "Hey, will you support our thing? Can we put your 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 guys' name on this thing?" And we were like, "Yeah, heck yeah, heck heck yeah." we're going to call you the impact like you're always going to be the impact so um yeah i just i feel i feel really bad for for those people like does does this does this happen much like i can't think of a time this happens to like other sports that are maybe more long-standing or whatever other than the whole relocation thing well and other than like names like redskins and stuff like that yeah yeah so there's modern versions of why yeah there, there's a couple NBA teams that have done a rebrand in terms of like the the team name, the logo, whatever, but it's not super common. Really, my biggest takeaway from the whole Montreal rebrand was thinking, oh, no, what are the odds that at some point in the future that the Whitecaps are going to do some sort of rebrand? Mm. Drop the name Whitecaps. Like, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I, I love the name. Yeah. And it's, it's going unique. to something. Yeah. Going to something like Vancouver FC, or Vancouver United would be so much worse. Like when you, when you think of the, the Cascadia region, you're not thinking Vancouver FC, Seattle FC, Portland FC, it's Whitecaps, Sounders, Timbers, and there's identity there. there as, as, as Zach mentioned, there's history there. And I, I, Whitecaps is a great name in my opinion. Yeah, the only other Whitecaps team I know is a minor league baseball team, the Michigan Whitecaps. And I only know that because they've been tagged a couple of times and stuff by mistake. And then tweeted stuff out about it, but yeah. there's, there's also a, a like a school in Texas. Uh, I forget what uh, Galveston, Galveston, Texas has a has a team, and I, their baseball team. I don't know if it's a whole school, but their baseball team is called the Whitecaps. And I only know that because a student I worked with went and played for them for a couple of years. Well, now they've got Whitecaps in Texas for for snowy reasons. Never mind anything else, of course, but. The only thing I can think of is like a couple of seasons ago in England, the owner that had come in tried to change Hull City to Hull Tigers and the fans were in outrage and stopped that. But he wanted to do it because he wanted them to have a unique name because he said City's too generic, just like United or FC's generic. So he was coming at it like Hull Tigers gives us an identity that no one else has. So he was going at it from the opposite of what clubs here seem to want to do and then cardiff city the, the owner changed it because he was oh, no, he changed the colors the colors he changed yeah. the colors because he's from from a country malaysia asia, yeah malaysia where they he, red is the big color an important color so he changed it from blue to red yeah the cardiff city nicknamed the bluebirds yeah yeah anyway let's move move on from that that talk let's talk about player stuff now so montreal have signed an amazing 11 players this offseason. How can you do that during a pandemic, Michael? I, I, and going to play in a different country. Although, to be fair, four of those 11 were academy players. So I guess seven real players. I'm doing that in an inverted commas. But some of them seem random. Some of them leave you wondering exactly what direction the, the club is kind of going. Of those seven signed players, three of them are forwards. And you've got another lone guy that's a forward as well. So there's two lone guys. So, like, four out of the nine are forwards, which 
Thierry Henry said he, he was targeting an out-and-out number nine. He was needing more goals this year, so, so that makes a, a lot of sense. Now, one of the guys that has come in as a forward is a guy that obviously we know very well here in Vancouver. Draft pick in 2013, spent a lot of seasons here in Vancouver, Eric Hurtado. Made a surprise switch really back to Canada, coming back to Montreal after looking quite happy with Kansas City. They took up his option, they'd signed him to, to a new deal this off-season as well. We'll talk about him going there in a sec, but before we do that, I just want to play a little bit of audio. I jumped on a, a call with Eric on Friday morning. Just play a little bit of that just now. Uh, I know these things are out of your control as a pro athlete, but but you had a good season in Kansas City. Uh, I'm sure you thought you were coming back. Uh, you scored a spectacular goal. It's considered the goal of the season, maybe the goal of franchise history. Can you just explain to us, please, as best as you can, just what went down? Why are you why are you not in Kansas City anymore? Do you believe? I don't know. Only the big man up top knows why. Uh, I guess there, there was some miscommunication uh, between us, but whatever it was, uh, that's behind me, and, and it led me to Montreal, and I'm super excited to be a part of the club and, and super excited to get started. Can you just give me a timeline of how this came together? Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but it, it sounds like, as far as I can tell, you, you said goodbye to Kansas City just like relatively a few days ago on Instagram, and, and it seems like this came together very quickly. Can you just take us through the uh, the process of it, please? Yeah, I, I had to give a shout-out to KC because uh, ever since I got I got to KC, they showed me love, and, you know, it was, it was a good good team to be a part of, so I just wanted to say my, my farewells. Um, but I didn't know where I was going yet, and I didn't know if the doors were for sure shut with Kansas City. And so once... Um, once I was able to sign that contract with Montreal, then the doors were shut. So I was able to, able to bid my farewell. Um, and so that, that's what that was about. It, yeah, it, it just happened. It happened over the last week, week and a half. Eric, you're, you're used to life in Canada, but obviously this season, there's still a lot of unknowns as to where all the Canadian teams are going to be based and stuff like that. Is your plan to move your, your family to Montreal right away? Or are you just going to wait to see how it lies? And, and how is your French? Uh, my French is okay. I, uh, je m'appelle Eric. That's, that's all I really know. Um, but my plan is to see, is to wait and see what the team comes up with. I don't know where we're going to be based yet. Um, so right now I'm kind of, my family is just going to be put on hold right now. They're going to be staying, uh, with our family right now until we know what's going on. Um, and then if we are going to be up in Montreal, then yes, they will come up to Montreal with me. We're actually in the process right now of uh, applying for my son's passport. So once he gets that passport, then they'll be able to come up and, and be with me for the time being. It's been a, a long time since you, you you came to the league. It's like, I remember you being here in Vancouver 2013, you're going into your ninth season. How do you feel your game has developed in the last nine years and what do you think this move to Montreal is going to do to kind of help take your game then to the next level? I feel like uh, during the games I'm able to control myself a little more, control my body. Um, I feel like my first touch and my awareness has gotten better. Um, my knowledge of the game has gotten better just because I've been around it for so long um, at, at, at a top level. 
Um, and I'm very excited to bring that and my knowledge uh, to Montreal um, and what I've learned in Kansas City, uh, bring that to Montreal as well. Um, and I feel like I found myself a little bit in Kansas City when I when I lost myself in, in Vancouver. So I feel like I'm in a really good place right now, mentally, physically, and, and I feel like uh, it'll be a good fit for me. First time in the Eastern Conference, as you know, Montreal has a very um, young team this uh, this year. Uh, first of all, did you have the chance to talk with Thierry Henry? You know, there's a lot of rumor uh, surrounding the coach right now, and uh, maybe what what type of you know that you're going to be a veteran this year? Do you want to be like a, a mentor for all those uh, those youngsters? Thank you. Um, I have not got a chance to talk with the coach yet, with Thierry, um, and I I don't know anything about any rumors about him. I just, I'm really looking forward to getting up there and, and meeting him and, and working with him. Um, you know, I grew up watching him and I think it's going to be a really good experience and a lot, and you can, I'm going to get a lot of knowledge from him. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a vet now. It's, it's weird to, to think like that, you know, the, the time flies by, but I'd like to think of myself as, as a, as an older vet, as a mentor that can, you know, guide the youngsters and on how to be and, and, and where to go and, and how to handle situations on the field and off the field. Um, you know, I'm still learning too. Um, it's, it's a process, but I'm, I'm excited to whatever role, um, I'll have on the team. I'm, I'm excited for it. And I'm just going to try and bring positivity and, and, and creativity and, and hard work to the team. This Thank team you. last year was uh, quite thin at, at forward. Uh, and, uh, in the off season, we did see a few, a few players coming in. Um, given that there's a lot of new faces up top, um, do you feel like there's an opportunity for you to uh, make an impact and, and grab a, a good chunk of minutes for this team? I hope so. Um, I feel like it's always good to have players in a good amount of players in a position to make it competitive. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of fresh faces on the team right now. So maybe the spot is up for grabs right now. So I'm just going to come in preseason um, and I'm going to do what I do, work as hard as I can. And if I'm, if I'm called to be that starter, then You know, I'm going to give 100%. If I'm called to be on the bench, then I'm going to work my butt off to get to that starting position. So Eric Hurtado, new CF Montreal forward. If you look at his journey from Whitecaps rookie to now, and uh, I asked him in the chat there, like how he feels his game's grown and he just feels he's a more all-round player now and his control's a lot better, which I think it is because that was something he was criticised here for a, a lot. But one of the interesting things that he said there was towards the end of his time in Vancouver, he felt a little lost here in Vancouver. He kind of had lost himself as a player. But then he went to Kansas City and he refound himself again. He refound the player that he wanted to be Basically, he refound his love of the game. And he, although he's left there, he says that now, mentally and physically, he's where he wants to be and he, he's, he's ready to go. So, I mean, like, Zach, you've watched Eric for years here. How do you feel you've seen his growth in the... He's coming up for his ninth season now in MLS. So his eight seasons in MLS, how have you seen, seen him grow? Uh, yeah, I think, well... Eric is a, a player who possesses speed. Uh, he's not the tallest player, but he he, he possesses pretty good strength. Um, but one of the things when you talk to his coaches from his time in Vancouver here that they'll talk about is how his ability to work and work for the team and work hard. Um, I know Robbo really appreciated him uh, and all the things that he con contributed. 
uh, I know in talking to some of his other coaches, they would say like they they feel like he should have gotten more opportunity even when he was here, but also uh, in Kansas City. Um, because you saw in Kansas City and you saw here in Vancouver just glimpses of uh, the, te- the technique and the quality that he can finish with. Now, obviously, you need to be consistent and all that kind of stuff, but even this year, he scored that wonder. Oh, sort of- yeah. Like, he's good for a Galazzo a year, yeah. but that's then tied in with, with the problem, Jake. It's that the consistency, you don't see that from him week in, week out, which is why he is a, a bench player, basically, in MLS. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's 30 now is crazy to me yeah. <laughs> to think about. Like, and you mentioned he's good for Glossa every once in a while. Like, the, 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 the strongest Hurtado memory that I have is when he scored the goal that clinched the playoff spot back in 2017 in that crazy game in Kansas City when they oh, had, like, yeah. 20% possession. And then out of nowhere, he scores a the goal, they win one nothing. But he's just a very frustrating player from a fan perspective always in his time. Uh, in Vancouver, although he did end up scoring the last goal at BC Place that was in front of fans, yes, <laughs> which was uh, funny enough. And I, I went back. That. that was almost guaranteed he was going to score in that game. Yeah. And uh, I went back to the match preview that I wrote after that game for the second game of the season and dug up this uh, fun fact that I'd like to share with you guys. So can you guys guess how many goals Hurtado has scored in MLS play at BC Place in his career. <laughs> You're going to tell me that was his only one, aren't you? Um... <laughs> he scored against Seattle, that wonder strike against Seattle. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, where are all his other ones? In the gun two? <laughs> is it only two? No, the answer is four. Oh. oh okay. And one of them was against the Whitecaps. <laughs> yeah, if we come back with Montreal and do that uh, at some game here as well, Makes sense. You're like you're motivated against against your former team. The interesting thing is, I I can't remember. I I spoke to him and Johnny Russell, uh, Kansas City training before that home opener, and I can't remember who I spoke to first and who I spoke to last. But he was one of the last players I actually physically saw, like, and and actually spoke to, which is kind of kind of a, a weird thing. But whenever you speak to him, usually. He's not very forthcoming with his answers. I didn't use the interview I did with him because I asked him five questions and it was like just over a minute. That's how short his answers were. And then he just did a lengthy conference call where he gave really long answers and really thoughtful answers. So I think he has kind of matured and come out of his shell a bit. It's not just that though, Michael. Part of his, I think, two things. I, I can't remember was media. Like I think he felt burned by the media a little bit. Yeah, here, he, he did. By the media. And, and and absolutely with the with the fan base with the supporters, he felt underappreciated and like they didn't always uh, maybe support him. Uh, yeah, I think I think at BC, I don't know if he got booed or or whatever it was, but I, I just remember there was a bit of a dark time for him. I remember talking to him at training. I remember talking to him at, at the stadium and him. You yeah you he is very uh, emotive. He's a very emotive individual. You can you can. Um, tell the mood he's in by his body language usually and he's not uh for better or for worse from what i remember he's not good at hiding it like you know you can very much kind of get the sense of where he's at from just kind of looking at him or spending a little bit of time with him you know if he's up you know if he's down um and so uh i think that that had uh, a lot to do with maybe his answers for you 
uh, not just you, but there was others. I know he yeah. he, he chose to disengage with with fans, especially in Vancouver, on you know in places like social media, like an Instagram and, and Twitter. Oh yeah, Whitecap social media was brutal towards him, and I think it was unfair because he worked hard at getting his control and improving his game. And the big thing that surprised me with this though, Jake, is now obviously you want to play at. The, the top level, which in North America is MLS. But he's gone to Montreal, where, like, he, he's in a squad where, I'm just having a quick look here, you've got, there are other new signing who we're about to hear from in a sec, Bjorn Jonsson, 29-year-old, who's joined from the, the K-League, he's an American-Norwegian. They signed a, an 18-year-old Nigerian prospect, Sanusi Ibrahim, They've got uh, Joaquin Torres, 24-year-old Argentine winger on loan from New Old Boys. And then you've got uh, Lassie Lapalainen, whose loan's been extended for this year. Rommel Kyoto, who led the line for last year. And the American Mason Toy. So you're looking at that, and that's a lot of attackers. So Eric's going in there, and you have to think Eric's going to now be a, a bench player in Montreal. So why has he chosen to maybe do that as opposed to dropping down to USL where he would probably be a starter week in, week out? Well, as mentioned, he's 30. So if you, I feel like if you're dropping down to the USL despite having MLS offers on the table like he obviously did, then it would likely be for a, a bid to do well there and then be able to bounce back up to a bigger MLS opportunity. But if you're already at the point where he is in his career, he might not be as interested in doing that, possibly. Well, interestingly, there was always loads of rumours, which the club denied that he had refused to play for WFC2 because he was the guy that wasn't even featuring in the game day 18. So you're like, well, why is he not playing USL? But everyone then jumped to conclusions that he had said he didn't want to do it and the club said that wasn't true. The other thing around that that I heard was it was kind of felt that mentally he wasn't the kind of guy that could maybe drop down to USL. He'd see it as being a demotion and it would maybe affect how he just approached the game mentally. So yeah, maybe he's a guy that needs to be at the top level to, to bring the best out of him. I don't know. I mean, he'll still he'll, he'll be in training with montreal all the time and it, it might be a sort of thing where he's betting on himself that he can outperform all these other forwards that montreal has got and get some sort of featured role in the team i think it's up for grabs there as as well and i'm going to play a little bit of audio now from one of the other new signings now this is the guy that i feel is going to be leading the line or at least beside Kyoto if they're going for two up front or battling with Kyoto as the main starter. They've brought him in from uh, the K-League, was playing it in Korea. Bjorn Jonsson, he had a, a spell at Hearts in Scotland. I don't really re- remember him there, but I mean, he's, he's be, been at some top clubs, Rosalind, um, Azee in, in Holland. And let, before we talk about him, let's just play a little bit of audio. One of the things that struck me about him is Montreal have got a great guy by the looks of it on the pitch, but also a great guy off the pitch because he's he's very charismatic. So let's hear a little bit now from Montreal's other new signing, more of an out-and-out forward this time, Bjorn Jonsson. (laughs) 
Can you just talk about uh, how often you've moved around? I think you've played for eight teams and eight countries and, and, you know, so just re your reaction now about coming to yet one more country and one more team, please. Obviously my, my, uh, my career has been very, been moving around a lot. I've, uh, you know, changed different series, different teams, uh, different cultures, uh, Asia now. Um, yeah. For me, it's just been very an amazing experience. Um, obviously, I was born in New York. I was raised in North Carolina um, to my dad. And, you know, um, when I got the opportunity to go to Norway to play in Europe, I had the passport, so it was really easy for me to do it. You know, I just really wanted to try and try to, you know, I could have gone to university and, and played at UNC or Syracuse or something like that and maybe try to get into the MLS by that way. But, um, you know, I just felt that... Uh, after watching so much football on TV as a kid, you know, I don't see those guys going to university and becoming professionals so early in their careers. So I thought it was probably the best idea was to, uh, you know, my father also gave me the idea, you know, just go and try. And if you don't, doesn't work out, then uh, you can always go home and, 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 and study and, and, and get your diploma afterwards. So um, for me now, uh, everything went well, obviously. Um, changing so many teams concerning that, I think, you know, Every year I, I played well. I was a striker. So as a striker, as you may know, when you play good, you score goals, you get bought by another team or another team wants you. And uh, maybe your team can't pay the salary that you want. Or, um, you know, there's so many different factors to me moving each team. Uh, for example, I'll give you just a couple examples. In Portugal, you know, I was making crap money and, you know, I was playing fantastic. And, uh, you know, Benfica wanted me at that moment. Sporting gave me a, a trial. And, you know, I was just really feeling good about my soccer. I thought, you know, I was getting better than than what my team was. So I had to move. And um, yeah, obviously the Bulgarians gave me a huge contract that, uh, that I couldn't say no to. And at that moment, you know, at your young age, um, maybe it wasn't the best decision or maybe it was, I don't know. Um, obviously my, my, uh, my career went well afterwards. So uh, I think that thanks to them, I, I got the opportunity to play in the first division in, uh, in Litex and, and, and there I just you know, kept flying forward. Um, yeah, from Montreal, I really think that uh, after so many places, that me and my wife have talked about it a lot lately in the last couple of years. We decided to go to Asia and uh, we couldn't say no to that opportunity and, and the, the contract they offered me, um, a team that was going to be in contention for the league and for the cup and for the, for the Champions League. I mean, we were basically um, two or three kicks away from having a treble. So, I mean, you know, I, I got a red card at the last second to last game. I mean, that was bad luck and, you know, the small stuff like that. I mean, we could have had a trouble in the last year. So, you know, winning the Champions League, um, that's a dream come true, whether it's in Asia or any place in Europe. So, uh, for me, I'm just very proud to have played in so many clubs and so many fantastic clubs like Rosenborg, Hearts, uh, Azet, Ado. You know, these are big clubs um, in Europe. So, now we felt that it was the best for, our, for now. We're having a baby soon. So, um, you know, the best for us was to maybe settle down and, and, and try to focus on a three-year contract, trying to be at a place for three years. Or even more, you, you know, I can play well and, and, and decide to stay for five, six years like, uh, like Piatti. I mean, that's the, that's the idea. Um, the idea for me is to, be, to come to Montreal and, and, and push myself and the team and make sure that uh, I'm indispensable and that, uh, that uh, I'm a player that, you know, the club needs and the club uh, wants me to stay. So uh, that's, that's, the, that's the, the motive right now. And that's what uh, I'm pushing for. And that's what we're striving for, me and my wife. And I mean, let's hope that it goes that way. I was wondering, what's your situation right now with the Norwegian national team? Obviously, the pandemic threw a wrench into any plans that anybody had, but do you feel that a move to MLS can maybe help you in that sense to stay on the radar for the national team? And I was wondering as well, has anyone given you any privileged insight into how 
MLS has evolved since you left the U.S. Uh, I mean, Kim Ki-hee jumps to mind because I think you played with him. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. anyone else do uh, that for you? Um, obviously, I just talked to Kihi about this, like, not even two months ago before the Champions League or three months ago before the Champions League. I told him, look, he had an offer actually from an MLS team. I don't know what it was, so I can't really tell you that. But uh, he told me, yeah, you know, the MLS is calling again. It's really, it's really important for him. He had a fantastic year, obviously. Winning the, winning the MLS Cup. So uh, he obviously has great memories, not a player who, uh, who lost every game. So, yeah, he just told me that uh, right now the amazing, the, the, you know, the continuity of all the teams playing well and, and uh, doing better every year and, and getting better players every year. And, you know, I obviously follow as well. So, um, you know, small things like MLS is back and, uh, and uh, you know, extra time. I watch those podcasts. I, I, you know, I, I follow the MLS. So, Yeah, many people might not remember me because I've played so long, but the people from North Carolina, they know who I am. So they know that uh, I've always thought about maybe coming back to MLS. I didn't know if it was going to be now or at the last year of my career. I didn't know. So um, obviously right now I just got the opportunity. Thank you to Olivier and um, thank you to Montreal as well. Um, right now, for me, the national team is second in fiddle for me right now. Right now I'm really focused on my club football. I had that opportunity to play for the national team. I was really excited to represent my country. Um, obviously, I went to Asia right in the moment that uh, Holland got, you know, the big uh, the big uh, explosion of scoring goals with Dortmund and, and uh, Salzburg. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, I know that coming out of Asia, finally coming to a place that's uh, renowned for its football again in, in, in MLS, being being a good league now, there's obviously Norwegians who have played there, Diamande, uh, Adama, and, you know, Obviously, uh, Jurgen, who plays in uh, Philadelphia, it's you know the players. Players are playing there, so uh, I know that people are watching us and while playing in the MLS. That will be as well, but uh, that's not my main focus. My main focus is to be is to be focused on the club football because I already have my you know, my, my credentials as a national team. And if they call me, they call me. If they don't, um, I'm not going to be crying at home. You know, I'm, I know that most important right now is the club, and the club right now is is also the most important for me and my wife. So um, you know, that's how it is, and. That's how I am in my career right now. Um, so I get called. I get called. That's how it is. You're coming in, striker. This team didn't have a target man for a while. I'm not going to say who was the last target man. I don't want to put that pressure on you. But uh, <laughs> it's coming in and making an impact right away uh, as, as, a, as a, a target man this team didn't have for a while. Uh, on your mind coming into uh, training camp? And obviously, I know who it is. It's Drogba one of my favorite strikers of all time. So <laughs> obviously that was also helpful knowing that, um, you know, Piatti and, and, and Drogba are players that I'm, I'm coming after. So I know the pressure of playing in a team and that's what you live for. That's what you play football for is what, you know, is to have pressure to be able to look at some statistics and say, look, hey, I can maybe catch Drogba. I can maybe catch Piatti. I can maybe do this kind of things. But my first really reaction is I want to learn from Henri, um, one of also my idols as well. You know, uh, one of my idols as well is Ibrahimovic, who played in the MLS a couple of years ago. And, you know, these kind of players, you watch their videos and you watch what they've done. You try to emulate, you know, emulate that or learn from those kind of people. And now I have the opportunity to learn from one of, one of the three. Well, I can't say no to those kind of opportunities. So um, for me right now, the most important is getting to pre-camp, um, winning my place, because I know that Olivia bring, bring me to the club and that Henri wants a certain kind of players and if i'm not in that kind of idea or uh, con uh conversation then i need to win my place so in that perspective i know that i'm coming to win my place i'm 
from ground zero all over again, like every year I have in my career. And um, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I'm really excited. I am 29. I'm not old, but I'm not young. So I know that I have the experience of what I've learned before. Obviously, I need to learn some French <laughs> and go from there. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, my opportunity to play is very high. And I want to make sure that I win my place and show that I'm one of the better strikers in the club. You, you touched on it there. You're coming to a club as a striker where you've got a legendary striker in charge in Thierry Henry. What are you hoping that he can help bring out of your game? You're 29, you're obviously a seasoned player. What do you feel he can bring your game to the next level? What do you still feel you need to work on? I have pretty much perfected the aerial um, part of football, basically. You know, winning the ball with the head, holding it up, because that's what I was accustomed to doing in the national team in Norway, to doing in Scotland, to doing in, 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 in Aradin Haag. That's what I was asked to do. Um, now I might be asked to do something else. So to have an all-around game, the best person to learn from is someone who was absolutely amazing with his feet. So having Henri as a coach or a trainer is probably the best thing that could help take that next step because as a top player, most of our primes are later in our career. So if I'm learning now in my 29th year, maybe in my 30th year next year, I'm a totally new player that has the whole package. So I want to be able to make sure that I know I need to learn. I'm coming knowing that I need to learn. I'm not coming knowing that I know everything. I don't know everything. Henri knows much more than I do. So I know that learning from him can help my game and help the team. So the most that I can do is ask him for help and ask him what I can do to win my place in the team and what he needs me to do. And from there, I can be very straightforward and say, look, yes, I can do that. Or mm, those are limitations that I can't do. And that's it. That's a, it's a conversation, really. It's more knowing knowing your place. As a young player, the, you can learn so many different things over the course of five to four years, five, six years. Montreal bring me in because they know that I'm a seasoned player and that they can count on me right now. So I hope that I can learn in this preseason some small little tricks that I can use in the games that will help me get my, my, my statistics and my, and my assists and goals ratios higher for when the, when the season comes. So new Montreal signing Bjorn Jonsson there. An American-Norwegian. Don't get many of those combinations, but he, he's played basically his whole career over overseas, mostly in, in Europe. Yeah, he's had 11 clubs in 10 years. Montreal will be his 12th club in his 11th year. Canada's going to be the 8th country that he's played his trade in as well. He, he's played Bulgaria, Spain, Portugal, Scotland, Norway, Sweden. So like, he's been all over the place. He's averaging a goal every three games, and in recent years, a little bit better than that. He's played with some big clubs, as I said. So he looks like a guy... I'm really interested to see how he does in MLS, because he is American, but he decided, as he said there, he didn't want to go down the college route, because he said he, he watches football on TV, he watches these professionals, and he's like, they didn't go to college and then become a professional. They went and became professionals right away. So that's the route that he's chosen to do. I know nothing about him, despite the fact that he played in Scotland, because I don't remember him, as I mentioned. But, I mean, from what you've seen or read about him, I don't know if you've read much about him. I think he could be a, a, a good pickup for Montreal. I'm excited to see what he does beside Kyoto. Yeah, I, I know very little other, other than the things, things you've mentioned, Michael. Um, it is... Uh... 
it is going to be interesting to see, I think, more so for me, what is done with Kyoto because a lot of the time last year he was played up top more as opposed to out wide, which is where uh, we first got to know him as a mm. more of a wide player when he was at uh, Olympia. Well, Jonsson uh, seems more your number nine, so that yeah. could probably allow them then to, to move Kyoto out, out to the wing but, again. But Kyoto, I think, also played in a two last year a number of times, if my mm. memory serves me correctly. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they, what they do there because Kyoto was, like, key for them in terms of goal scoring. Um, and so, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. Again, Eric, I think, like in Vancouver, like in um, Kansas City, is going to have to just fight for his place in there. And hopefully his work rate and um, some consistency and those flashes of brilliance uh, get him some time. Or maybe he's a part of a three with, the, with those players. Um, or they do, or they, or some, you know, some combination of of the other attacking options they have. But yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Jake, do you know do you know much about the, about this guy? No, I don't. It's <laughs> definitely an interesting CV, though, getting to bounce around the world while uh, playing soccer. Yeah, and some of the stuff I didn't in, include in the interview there because it was a twenty nine minute chat he had, and he he was happy he said to to. Sp- answer questions all day so i've only included a 10 minutes off it but he he has a house in spain and that's where he was doing the interview from and he said they bought that right away and that's where they always come back to in their off seasons that they live in spain because his, his wife's spanish and he said most norwegian players retire in spain after they've finished playing but he was very open he bounced around because he wanted to be paid for what he did so anyone that offered him a decent deal he went to play there he said he was playing in portugal and his exact words the pay was crap so bulgarian club comes in with big money off he goes to bulgaria now he's got a three-year deal in montreal but one of the interesting things for him and eric is they both talked about as strikers, how excited they were to come and work under the legend, world-class striker Thierry Henry. So that was a big selling point for Jonsson coming to Montreal. He said Henry is one of the players that he looked up to and is one of his idols, so he wanted to go and work with him. Eric as well talked about what he can learn from Henri and to, to bring his game on and... Is Henri even going to be there? Because there's all the rumours at the moment. I'm hoping to get this out before anything happens. That's why we're Montreal heavy this episode. It looks like he's going over to England um, with Bournemouth in the Championship, which in itself, it strikes me as a weird move. Bournemouth just now, they're sixth in the Championship. They look a long way off automatic promotion, so they're fighting for the playoff spot. They're in the last playoff spot just now, and they've got three points to play with. Now, for me, a club like that, bringing in Thierry Henry, who hasn't done great at Monaco, he hasn't done great at Montreal, it strikes me as that would be an appointment that would be just for name factor alone, to try and sell tickets, to try and get publicity for your team as opposed to a guy that might get them in the playoffs and, and take them up. And I may be doing a, a disservice to Thierry Henry there. But, I mean, Jake, it, it strikes me as a bizarre one. I, I guess it's a pretty funny coincidence I ended up coming on this episode specifically because I became a fan of Bournemouth after they got promoted to the Premier League ah. a few years ago, and I've stayed a fan of them since then. 
been watching their games when I can uh, in the championship this season. Okay, well, we got to stop. We got to pause here for a minute. How does one become a fan of Bournemouth? Well, at the time when they got promoted to the Premier League, I've been watching the Premier League for a while, but never had a team that I was really cheering for. So when I was reading up on the teams that had been promoted that season and their story was super cool going from League Two up to the Premier League in like five years or whatever they did and started watching more of their games because of that. And I enjoyed watching them and have just stuck with it since then. Yeah, I've got to admit when they got promoted, they were the team I was rooting for as well outside of West Ham because it's like a small provincial team doing this. They nearly went bust seasons before. Mm-hmm. I've got a documentary. Actually, I don't know if you've seen this. There's a documentary about yeah. Bournemouth from bust to to thing. It's like fascinating. And like Brighton's the same. They're another club that nearly dropped out the football league and now punching above their weight. But I've got an article up here from Saturday from Sky Sports. So that there's four people in the frame for this Bournemouth job. So there's Henri. This is ex-Arsenal teammate Patrick Vieira. There's former Schalke and Huddersfield manager David Wagner, who's got experience in the Premier, and the current caretaker boss, Jonathan Woodgate. Now, out of those four, Henri would be the last guy I would want as my manager in terms of what he's actually done. It's it's funny that you mentioned the name thing, because that was what stuck out to me after they fired their, their former manager and have been on the search for the last couple of weeks because the first early front runner was Frank Lampard. Mm. And I was again thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Is that just a name thing? And then it was, then John Terry came up. It's like, what, like, what are they? Are they, are they just looking for former players? And then, so when Thierry Henry popped up, that was, that was even the, the furthest one out of left field. Cause I didn't think you would be thinking of leaving Montreal right now, given that he's only been there for a year. So I'm not really sure what, they're looking for at the moment as a club in terms of the manager. I don't know what they're they're looking for, for players, for management, whatever. I mean, the thing is, Zach, when Henri got that job, I, and I'm sure many others thought he's using it as a stepping stone. He's going to end up back in Europe. Fair yeah. enough. If he'd done it at the end of the season, fair enough. But to suddenly leave the club potentially in the lurch a couple of weeks before the season starts... I, I don't know. I mean, Henri seems to be the favourite to get it, according to the media. I, I don't know that he is. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that he, I don't... Uh, uh, Vieira would, would seem more like a, 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 a... Not a bigger name, but like more of a... Better, like you said, better experience. Yeah, I like David Wagner. I like what he did with Huddersfield. Yeah. He took them up. Hey, David Wagner... Um, is a part of this horrible season that Schalke is having. Uh, so I feel really bad for him, and I, I, I would be happy for him to go there and, and, and do well. Uh, you said Jonathan Woodgate, right? Yeah, he's the caretaker boss there just now. But yeah, he's... Yeah. I, I'd drill him out probably, maybe have I, Henri before. I don't I know. Henri's got contacts is what they're thinking. Oh, yeah. But... That hasn't really paid off in Montreal. No, had... but the publicity that Bournemouth would get by hiring Henri... Because he'd be doing all his Sky stuff as well, mm-hmm. again, that he used to do. So, I mean, there's that aspect of it. I just don't know that he's got what they need right now if they're trying to get back to the Premier right away. Yeah, but like how much publicity are you going to get if you're hiring Henri, but then just end up staying 
like mid table in the championship or potentially even going a little bit lower than that then because it's like he'll be scrutinized for everything he does Mm -hmm. and the english media take no prisoners and like like you mentioned with the montreal being a stepping stone thing i can't imagine he's thinking i want to be a manager in the championship for any longer than i might have to be yeah because if 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 he's looking to go at Bournemouth, might be thinking betting on himself to get back up to the Premier League, and then all of a sudden he's a Premier League manager. Yeah, that, that's probably a good shout. I mean, the Championship—it's my favourite league in in Eng- the English league system, just because it's always so competitive, and those playoffs are an absolute lottery. Once you get into the playoffs, it doesn't matter if you're third, fourth, fifth, or sixth; anyone's got a chance. So he has to get them there first of all, and then it's whether he can get them motivated the way that, that he needs to to get them motivated for it. From a Montreal perspective, an interesting aspect is Johnson mentioned that it was the Montreal sporting director, Olivier Renard, that is the reason that he has come to Montreal. He did all the negotiations, he spoke to him, he'd followed his career for a while. So Renard did that signing. Eric revealed that he hasn't spoken to Thierry Henry. So again, it's Renard that, that's doing all this. So it, it kind of makes you wonder how much actual say has Henri had in these transfers in Montreal? Or is it Olivier Renard that, that's, that's doing all this? I don't know if that's a good strategy to have because you've still got a bit of continuity. But then if Henri moves on, you've got a new manager coming in and none of these are his players, but he might not be able to get rid of anyone he doesn't want because the sporting director is the guy that's brought them in. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario. And when players talk like that, it's usually not... like If if they don't mention the coach, especially one who's so high profile, that's awkward. And then to say, as you said, Eric said, to say, I haven't talking, I haven't spoken with the coach yet, that's just that's really weird. Mm-hmm. So it, it, again, it might not be anything, but it feels a little bit where, you know, there's some smoke, there's some fire, kind of thing, um, which I, I think would not be good for for Montreal. Like I think, I think in terms of this, what they're trying to do, bigger picture, and even this whole changing the like changing the name and stuff. I think you're helped when you have someone like Thierry Henry. It helps you ride out, you know, the difficulties that. You are going to face with your 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 loyal you know you know your loyal supporters, and so if he leaves, it, this is like a, I think a real, a, 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 it's a real gut punch for them, and it'll be interesting to see how they how they recover for it, or behind the scenes how they've been planning for it. And maybe he's just not a fan of the rebrand. Maybe maybe he's a big uh, impact fan. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing if he came out of his mouth and said, "Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not so disappointed that I left. They they made this really awful change." Yeah, yeah. I, I've always been an impact fan. I, I just could yeah. not support that. <laughs> he grew or, up or he a says, fan of the impact. <laughs> yeah, if he, said, if he said something like, "Yeah, I'm no snowflake. I don't want to be a part of this." But, um, at least I, I'm in a mess. It's, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine any scenario where your manager maybe jumping ship a month or two before the season starts after you've signed 11 players is an ideal scenario from a technical, from a leadership perspective. Like the only experience I've had of that actually worked out positive. Like there was a, the 96, 97 season East five had a high profile manager 
And we always knew he was going to move back to a bigger team and he moved up two divisions back to the Premiership, but he left us right towards the end of pre-season, just a, a week before the season was going to start. And we're like, oh, we're in a mess now. But then we appointed Steve Archibald, former Scotland international, played with Spurs in Barcelona. He got his promotion. So that worked out good. So this could work out good for Montreal. But that's very different situation because it's lower league football and you can just go and, and sign whoever or whatever. Now, you've got a coach that's going to be coming in. Um, I mean, I, I don't even know where they would start to look, but you have to feel it's going to be another European coach with Renard being there. And like, if Zinedine Zidane got sacked by Real Madrid, he strikes you as the kind of player that would just walk into a job in Montreal, another high profile guy. Patrick Vieira, maybe he doesn't get the Bournemouth job and, and walks into Montreal. Well, that would, there another interesting thing that could happen there if it was Vieira is he has already turned down Toronto in this offseason. Yeah, well, alle allegedly, but yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's a, it's a mess. But anyway, that is it for this part. That's it for Jake's involvement in, in this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. I said it'd be about 50 minutes. We've gone an hour and a half. That's my usual. You'll get used to this. I hope, you, <laughs> hope you've enjoyed it. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Well, we'll get you on again soon. And yeah, we'll be back in the next part. Taking a break from MLS, we're going to actually hop in the TARDIS and do some time travelling. And we're going to be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Eric Hurtado, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part is this month's Artist of the Month, Scottish band Idlewild, with a song taken from their second album. You could argue it's their first. It was their first full-length album. It's I think of it as their second album, because they did have a mini-album out. That's from 1988. The album is called Hope is Important, and the song was a film... For the future. Let's let's move away from the future. Let's get into the past. And I'm going to introduce you to a new feature on the show. I've been recording these for a couple of weeks. And I actually launched it on the East Fife podcast that I do, Glory Days of Gold, before we did it on this one. I want to have a couple of ones under our belt here before we launched it here. And yeah, we're going back in time. I'm trying to think of the what I want to call this section. Right now, I'm thinking football time travels 
or time traveling football. I'll, I'll work in the name anyway. But basically, what this feature is going to be about is, and I, I tweeted this out tonight as well. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, particularly the the original Doctor Who. I've got every single thing you could imagine for the original Doctor Who series. I'd love to travel in the TARDIS one day. If you could get the TARDIS, but there was some criteria that you had to use the TARDIS to go back in time to three football matches from any time in football's history, what three games would you use the TARDIS to go back and see? Now, the criteria I've set is that it could be a game that you've actually been to and you just want to relive the experience. It could be a game that you've been to and you didn't really get to enjoy it at the time and you want to, to relive it in its full glory knowing what the outcome is. Or it could be a game in history that you would just love to have attended. And I'll, I'll give you my three just to, to kick this off. So two of them are East Fife related. One of them is I'd like to go back to 1938, Scottish Cup final replay, where East Fife beat Kilmarnock as a second tier team. First team to do it, the lowest team ever to, to win the Scottish Cup in the whole history of the Scottish Cup. We beat Kilmarnock in the final. I'd just love to be at that momentous occasion. That game is the pinnacle of East Fife's history. The other game I've picked is from 1947, which was East Fife's first of their three League Cup wins. And that was the team, spoke about it on last week's show, that was the best East Fife team ever. 1947-48 team, they won three trophies. Again, they were a second-tier team. They won the League Cup, they won the league that season. And there's so many players from East Fife folklore that were in that team that I would just love the chance to go and see them play a game. So why not see them win a trophy at the same time? And my third game is a non-East Fife game. I would love to go back to the 1930 World Cup final. Uruguay-Argentina in Montevideo. I've got a, a, a book. It was a self-published book just about that World Cup in Montevideo. It's a guy who's, I think, grandfather or great-grandfather uh, had been part of that, that World Cup. He's Uruguayan and he went back and he traced his history and got found all this old material in antique shops and stuff. I'd love to go to that. Such a momentous occasion. You know what the World Cup is now. Back then, did people really think it was going to be what it is today? And just to be at that special occasion, I, I just think would be absolutely wonderful. So what would your your three games be in your your tidest, your tardest football time travel, Zach? Uh, okay, the one I obviously uh, wasn't at, but from history would have loved to have been at. I think 1930 is a great shout. I'm going to go with 1954. 1954 is what's referred to in Germany as the miracle of Bern, where you had Germany playing Hungary in the West Germany playing Hungary in the final. They they played together in an opening group match, and Germany rested players and lost. I believe the score was eight to three. And then they met in the final. And I, I think this might have been before substitutions were allowed. And there's a couple of things that happened in this game. One, I think Hungary was up to a 2-0 lead at halftime, if memory serves me correctly. And But in, at some point, I think in the first half, one of the German defenders decided, like, let's not let this Puskas guy, like, just just run the run, run, you know, run rings around us and run the show. So I think they, I think one or two of them really gave him the boots, Michael, and really... 
I think he was limping the rest of the rest of the game. But That's how to do it. But one of my favorite parts of the story, as I understand it, is what happened at halftime. This is one of the reasons why uh, I have such a strong appreciation for Adidas, the the uh, the company. It was, of course, founded by a guy named Adolf Adi Dassler. He was the equipment manager for the German national team. Not only was he the one who, you know, uh, started the company from this famous uh, shoemaking uh, uh, city in in uh, in Bavaria, in uh, near Fra- near Nuremberg, um, called Herzogenaurach. Um, but, um, anyways, he he made he made he, he made Adidas. He became the equipment manager. He outfitted the team with all their boots. And it was a bit of I think a rainy day uh, in Bern, in Switzerland. And at halftime. He, this is the first time, I think this is, this was the, he like developed this technology or, or made it or was new or whatever. But it was at halftime, he replaced all the player studs with longer studs. And so they, they, they went out and won the game three, two. And like for me, Adidas and Adolf Dassler is someone who made an impact on world football in a, in a, in a major way, like, you know, like a supporter and supporters gathering together and lifting their team to victory. Uh, Adi Dassler lifted, helped lift the German national team to victory in 1954, and saw Fritz Walter lift uh, the World Cup trophy. So I'd like to be at that game. I think that that's a pretty awesome one. Um, good, good to know you're such a big fan of Adolf. I, I should have just called him Adi. Yeah. I, knew, I knew I was opening the door to you there. Um, <clears throat> Interesting as well. He's from Nuremberg. No, outside, no, Herzogenaurach. Oh, it's outside Nuremberg. Okay, because yes. that's such a footballing city. I think we've talked. Those are trials there. I think home. Oh I think we've talked about this on the show before. But he, he's from this famous shoemaking town. Him and his brother originally started having a company together. They had a fight, uh, irreconcilable differences. Can you name his brother's famous footballing company? Puma. You are correct, Michael. You, you should remember that for maybe one of our quiz nights. Yeah. Um, yeah, and his brother. It's even- interesting because it's either Aldi or Lidl, the German supermarket chain. They're founded by brothers as well that had a split and then they, they went their own different ways. Seems to be a, a thing in like German business. Yeah, his name was Rudolph. So that, that's the first game. I, I oh, would... the guy with the red nose. I remember seeing pictures of him. Yeah. Oh, my. Um, anyways, that's uh, the story of the Dassler brothers. Um, that's a great, like overall, like I know I'm being ridiculous and trying to be funny, but that's a that's a wonderful story. Oh, but we're actually going to come to to someone else's picks later on, and that's one of the picks that they had, oh, that game. I'm not surprised. It, 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 I, there's a movie in, in German about it uh, called The Miracle of Bern. I've never seen it, but ah. I, I don't know if there's an English translation or English subtitles, but I, I should hunt that down. Um, or at least that's my understanding. <laughs> um, the other games, I, I actually, I know we were talking about this before. That's a game I could never have been at. I guess I guess the next one I'm going to switch I'll leave out my I'll leave out my my story of the Champions League final for another time, and I've told it before, so it's not that exciting maybe for you. But uh, I guess if another game I could have gone to in history would have been I think in January 2000, uh, I believe it was in California, and it was when Canada won the Gold Cup. I think that that would have been pretty awesome to be at. I mean we we I didn't know them at the time. I only knew them years later, but you know we know people from that team you know like uh, martin nash mm. and carl corzine and jason devos and others craig forrest you know so that would have that would have been exciting to be a part of or to be at and then the last one um is i i, I might be getting this wrong but i believe it was october 12th a saturday or sunday uh 2008 
at Swanguard Stadium, um, which was the day of the USL final against Puerto, the Puerto Rico Islanders. And uh, it's not the greatest football match I've ever been to. Um, it's not the biggest cup game I've ever, I've ever been to. But um, just a lot of good memories, right? Like uh, hanging out and um, with, you know, people we've been hanging out with. Right? You you just been here for like, you came 2007, right? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so you'd only been around a year, but there have been people I've been hanging around with for four or five years. Um, yeah, it was just really awesome. One of the stories, and I don't know if I've ever told you the story or the details of the story, um, but there was a, a celebration after the game. Uh, there was a couple celebrations after the game. One was, I, maybe you remember this, but one was uh, like a, the players only, but they could bring their spouses or girlfriends or what, whatever, family or whatever. I'll leave, I'll leave some of the names out of the story, but you can, you can probably guess. One of the players gave us tickets to get in. There was, I don't know, three or four of us, uh, like I think Brett Graham, myself, Naz Catania. I can't remember if Mass was at this. There, there was, there was, th- there was. I think there was more than just just Brett, Naz, and I. I think there was one or two or three other people. And we got someone gave us a ticket to get into the gathering, a player. And so we're like, sweet, let's just go and like this is great and party and celebrate, whatever. Some uh, <laughs> someone from the Whitecaps wouldn't let us in. Like they wouldn't let us in the establishment that was hosting the party, which was um, par for the course for the individual. <laughs> but um, but uh, so that was a little bit disappointing. But instead, we went down, we went downtown and met the players after at the Roxy. And uh, I don't. Did we go anywhere else? Anyways, that was my first first and only ever time going to the Roxy <laughs> and just hanging out. And you, I think you've seen the pictures that people like Devin took and uh, other people took. And um, yeah, it was just. A, a, it was just a special night. Like it was a, a magical night. Did you make it to the Roxy? No. Um, I felt bad for leaving Caitlin. So oh, right. I, I went home. That set me up for what I was expecting football in Vancouver to be like winning mm. championships. Yeah. And it's been disappointing since then. Let's be honest. <laughs> that was a, that was a special year though, because East Fife won their first championship in 60 years and then the Whitecaps won that as well, and I was at both. And that that's one of the best footballing years of my life, 2008. Oh, I, I, I totally believe it. And that was, yeah, we did the double that year. We won the Cascadia Cup. I always get confused between 2006 and 2008. So it was a year where we did a double. It was amazing. We won the Cascadia Cup and won the USL Cup. And yeah, that was your first year. And so yeah, you were I, treated well. I, I was. I, I just, I still love those days. It's, I know it's easy to look back and reminisce. I'm really bad for just doing that in general, but it, those were those were great times. And that, that was three really good games that, that you selected there. I could have picked way more than three. I'm sure you could have picked way more than three, but we, we've set it at three. So what I'm going to do this year is I'm going to ask a number of players, Whitecaps personnel, non-Whitecaps folk, basically... Most people that we chat to, this is a question I'm going to put to them this year. And we're going to bring you the first of those tonight. When I I spoke to Axel Schuster last week, at the end of our chat, we had a little bit of fun with this one as well. So let's see what three games Whitecaps Sporting Director and CEO Axel Schuster would jump in the TARDIS and go back and see. If 
you were to jump in the Doctor's TARDIS and go back in time to anywhere uh, in the footballing lands- landscape to, to go and see three matches that you've maybe seen some of them before or games that you would just love to attend, what would be the games that you would want to go back in time and, and take in? The first one would be the first game of uh, Jurgen Klopp as a coach in Mainz. Uh, it was against uh, Duisburg. We won the game 1-0. Um, it was so much pressure at the day. We, we changed the coach and Klopp, who was a player a week before, became coach because uh, we, we, we fired the coach and we were in a way bad spot. And everything, everything looked, uh, or everything, everybody, I think nobody believed that we would stay in the league. So there was so much pressure around that game. Everybody called us crazy. Now the, the player is the coach. So I had no time to enjoy that game, to, to see how a team winning after having a, a long period of not, not zero wins. So I would love to sit again in the stadium and to feel that game and to see that game. Another game that's, by the way, is more or less the first game that still is in my, in my remembrance. I think this is the game, if you ask me, what is the first game you remember that you have, that you have really focused and seen? It's the semi-final of the World Cup 1982, Germany against France. We were 3-1 down. Uh, uh, we were, no, it was 1-1 after 90 minutes. Germany was 3-1 down in the overtime, in the, in the extra time or whatever you, the English exact, exact word is. And we came back in this, in this 15 minutes and uh, won it in penalty shootout. Uh, we lost the final, but, but anyway. But uh, you, you did do it in controversial circumstances. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and there are so many, so many, still so many uh, stories around that game and so many things happened in that game. And, and France was this world-class team and Germany won it. And obviously Germany was, Germany was not that skilled team than France. And it was a hard-working and fighting game. Uh, no, yeah, there were also some bad moments in that game. Uh, I know that everything is, is solved today and Harald Schumacher apologized and uh, uh, they got friends again. But this game is, is one of the very crazy games in Germany history. And it was, by the way, so I was 10 years old. So it was the first game where I would say I was fascinated. I were in front of the screen and I, I followed this game. And then, then I think uh, I would really go back and in time and to see also to have a comparison to see one of the classical world cup games in the past with Pelé, um to see this team to to get an impression uh how how was he at, at his best time it is so hard to transfer to today and and people try to look at stats and data that's not fair the games were totally different but to feel to feel his impact to a game, his his uh, here, his extra begins and and his yeah perfect to his his uh, unique style of playing and being that guy. Everybody since I'm playing soccer, since I'm following soccer, it's always Pele. Pele is the biggest one, and Pele. I have never seen him live. I would love to see him once live. I had the chance to see Diego live. Of course, we had some. Some nice games. We had several finals against the Argentines anyway. So, so, but I saw him also live in a, in a Europa, Europa Pokal game in uh, Stuttgart. So I was able to see him. So, and, uh, 
of course, I was able to see all the German uh, superstars live, uh, uh, but um, I never saw him, and that's that's would be a dream. That's three fantastic games, and the first one you picked there. Like we've done this on our podcast that I do back in Scotland for my team East Fife, and a lot of the the supporters have picked for one of their games. It's a game from two thousand and three where we scored an eighty ninth minute winner to win promotion. And we, none of us could enjoy the game because there was so much on the line. So the whole, just to be able to sit and watch that and take it in, knowing what the end result was, would, would be so good. So thank you so much. I enjoyed listening to that. I'd love to have seen Pelly played as well, but unfortunately never made that. Axel Schuster there, travelling in the TARDIS, going back in time to see good selection of games there. And this, when we started doing these a couple of weeks ago on the East Fife podcast, has proved to be one of the most popular sections that that we've ever done. So hopefully it's also going to get a a good response from people out there. So get in touch with us on Twitter at AFT in Canada or send us an email aftincanada at hotmail.com you can type it up in a lot more detail there what three games would you use the TARDIS to go back and see and remember it could be games that you've seen and you want to relive or games that you've never seen and would just love to have the chance to go and see I put that question out just a a couple of hours before we, we did the podcast tonight so only had a couple of responses so far but I'm sure we'll have a lot more of those I'll read out a couple that I have had just now Oz Sweeney said he would go back and watch his uncle Mike, Mike Sweeney, at the World Cup in 1986. He'd also go to the 1999 Champions League final. That was the one where Man United came back and shocked Bayern Munich with two goals in the last couple of minutes. That has proved a very popular game for people, Zach. Yeah, that's one I have still have nightmares about. And his third game would be Man United 8, Arsenal 2, one of the best matches in the Fergie era. Fully aroused, he just says, August 26th, 2015. Zach's looking puzzled. August 26th, 2015. Was that on Cascadia Wigan? Voyager's Cup, the only Voyager's oh, Cup yeah. the Whitecaps have lifted. Fully wow. aroused says, I was stuck in camp with my mate Joe, and the two of us had season tickets together. We even missed the first half due to work. So he'd love to to just basically go back and and relive that. And that's one of those games that, like I spoke at the end with Axel there about the East Fife game where we won promotion. If you could go back to a game that you haven't really been able to enjoy because you were so tense during it, but you know what the outcome is and you can go back and relive it and enjoy that a lot more. Gary Nolan, he just went for one game. He went another Champions League final. Istanbul... 2005. Now, I don't like Liverpool, but even I would love to be in the stadium amongst the Liverpool fans for that one. Just coming back in that game, just the emotions that they must have had, absolutely phenomenal. I just think it's a tremendous game to be at. So yeah, let us know what ones you would go back in time to to see. I'm just going to round this section off tonight with an email that we got from Raymond Weir. 
Now, a couple of weeks ago, you might remember we had Raymond Weir on the show, lead singer of the Eisenhowers, penned the wonderful football song, Three O'Clock on a Saturday. And we we had a, a chat with Raymond about lots of, of things to do with football. He mentioned there's no specific team he supports. He, he's just a, a football fan, first and foremost. So he sent us a, an email with the, the three games that, that he would love. He said, this section is right up his street and he could think of dozens of games he'd love to, to nip back in the terrace and attend. And if you asked him tomorrow, he might even pick three different ones. So the three that he's come up with, the first one, he discovered this game on YouTube. It's from December 1962. And it's a, it's a Scottish team, Dunfermline Athletic, Fife rivals to East Fife. They played a Fairs Cup tie. That was the precursor to the UEFA Cup against Valencia. They'd lost the first leg 4-0 in Spain. And the, the return was played at a frosty East End Park the week before Christmas. The Spaniards, he imagined, must have been somewhat bemused by the referee's insistence that the frozen pitch was actually playable. 20 minutes into the game, and Dunfermline had scored three goals to make it 4-3 in aggregate. And uh, he feels that the Spaniards most certainly would have been bewildered by the scale of the thrashing being administered by the eager and skillful young Scottish forwards. He says, you can watch the clip on YouTube, and I've actually bookmarked it. I'm going to watch it this weekend. It's an eight-minute video. And you can see the body language that Valencia players didn't really want to be there. By half-time, they were 5-1 down, and the tie was square on aggregate. He says, I don't know what the Spanish is for what the actual fuck, but I'm guessing that is what someone might have used words to that effect in the dressing room at half-time. TV commentator Bob Crampsey, who's a Scottish icon commentator, later said that during the last 10 minutes of the first half, he couldn't hear himself speak, such was the noise from the crowd. Dunfermline eventually won the match 6-2, but these were the days before the away goals rule and penalty shootouts, so they had to have a playoff, and Dunfermline eventually lost. But that would have been an amazing comeback to see. His second one is the one that, that you picked there. Uh, he said, a couple of years ago I watched the official film of the 1954 World Cup, which I did as well a couple of years ago. He says, it was quite charming and painted a lovely picture of an international, although not yet global, tournament before it turned into the rather bloated commercial monster that we have now. 48 teams, he says, give me a break. I am still seriously concerned about having to, to mortgage my house for my Panini album for 2026. Mainly concerned because I don't own my house, but I'll do whatever it takes to get that album completed. I'll, I'll tell you that now. So Ray says... Judging by the highlights, the final was a remarkable game. The stadium in Bern was absolutely rammed, the pitch was soggy, and there must have been a sense amongst the crowd that they were witnessing something really special. Hungary were arguably the team that invented the modern game, and they took on a workmanlike West Germany, a side that had already thrashed 8-3 in the group stages, as you mentioned. Germans were 2-0 down inside 8 minutes, but somehow they clawed their way back into the contest. It was played like an old-fashioned cup tie from end to end. In their passing, movement and technical ability, the Hungarians looked like a top division team, while the West Germans looked like plucky part-timers from the third or fourth tier. But strange things started to happen. The German goalie was inspired, and many Hungarian attempts on goal failed for reasons which appeared to defy logic. Instead of winning 9-3 or something, the Hungarians conceded a late goal to lose 3-2, and one of the greatest upsets of all time. 
They also had a goal disallowed in the last minute. He says that really would have been something to see. And you certainly agree with that one, Zach. For real. I'm glad my memory's somewhat all right on that one. And the, the last game Raymond picks is September 1973, World Cup qualifier, Scotland-Czechoslovakia. Scotland needed to win to qualify for the World Cup for the first time in 16 years. And our boys recovered from giving away a very soft goal, described by TV commentator Arthur Montford as a disaster for Scotland, to beat the team that would just a couple of years later become European champs. There were 100,000 people at Hamden that night, and you can hear it on the highlights, the noise when Holton and Jordan got the two goals for Scotland is absolutely deafening. It's like an aircraft taking off. What a game that would have been to attend. So that's what we're looking for, those kind of things. It doesn't have to be Whitecaps related or Canadian soccer related, just tell us. We have a lot of folk that listen to this show that, that's not Whitecaps fans. Just, what three games would you use the TARDIS to go back in time and see? I'd, I'd love the TARDIS. I, I've thought before, like, what if I had the TARDIS, just what periods of history would I love to, to go back and see? And I'd love to go back to Roman times, maybe Viking times, just stuff like that. It, it would just be fantastic. But that is it for our news section. We hope you've enjoyed that. We'll be bringing you some more of that soon. So we're going to round off this section now with this week's wavelength. Now, in the last part, we were talking about Thierry Henry, French legend, and kind of said that a perfect fit to take over from him if he was available would be Zinedine Zidane. So let's keep that French theme going. I dug out a song from 2014 from Vaudeville Smash featuring Les Murray. This is a song called Zinedine Zidane. In 1972, under a scorching June sun in the French coastal town of Marseille, two Algerian immigrants awaited the birth of their fifth child. Later that day, a star was born. Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, Veron, Suarez, Van Basten, Gianluigi Buffon, Xavi, Iniesta, Drogba, Hazard, Tevez, Schweinsteiger, Steven, Gerard, Alessandro Del Piero, Neymar, Forlan, Erzin, Nakata, Jean-Pierre Papin, Balak, Van Persie, Beckham, Giggs, Goals, but the strongest of them all. Nedved Maldini, Aguero Raul, Casillas Cavani, Benzema Mandzukic, Mario Balotelli, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Lota Mateus, Shemchenko Cantona, Ronaldinho Ronaldo Romario Rivaldo Rubinho Ramirez Kaká, Falcao Frank Ribery, 
Beerlaw Cahill Company, but the strongest of them all. Smash featuring Les Murray from 2014 there, Zinedine Zidane. I still find it somewhat bizarre that Zinedine Zidane played a game at Swan Guard. Do you uh, remember that? Yeah, no one attended. I watched from the outside on a fence because I wasn't paying money to go and, and watch that bunch of scrubs. I, I don't think Because it promised so much and then yeah. it didn't deliver. I don't think I... I don't remember paying for my ticket. Did someone... I think... You were actually inside in that. Oh, yeah. I think one of my benevolent friends might have given me a ticket to that. Might have been one of the chaps I mentioned earlier. <laughs> was, I, I would oh. have gone if I got a free ticket, but I watched from the outside. The I feel f- terrible that I can't remember. It was hilarious, dude. I don't know if you remember. At one point, he's running. So I was in the bleachers on the, what is that called? The so north of... The east side east of the side, pit. Yeah. Yeah, no, so not the grandstand. But yeah, on, that's that's the bit of this defense I was looking through from that side, yeah. actually. So he's running, he's running down the field, like he's leading an attack and he's not that far. He's not on the touchline, but he's like, you know, in that channel and literally as he's running, he looks over at the crowd and waves at them. It was like unbelievable. And then I remember they like, they, I don't forget how they got him out of there because everyone would just stayed like, yeah, there was not a lot of people there and they all just stayed waiting for him at the tunnels. And then. I, I don't know if people went to every tunnel. They just went to the tunnel they thought he was going to be at, and they got him at one of the other one of the other places or whatever. But 
I didn't stay to the end of the game. I thought about it because I thought they'll open the gates and I'll be able to get in and get something signed, but I didn't in the end. The thing for me that really tickled me was one of the players playing in that game, which had been billed as all these big stars coming over, was Damiano Agostini that used to play for East Fife and had been playing in VMSL. And when I tell folk back home that, they're like, what? He, he was a great player with us there. We had a, a, a great song, the Tom Hart Piranha song. It was like, Damiano... Agostini, Damiano, Agostini. That's a good song. Yeah. Um, so once again, everyone was there to, to watch a World Cup winner, and you were there to watch a former Fife player. <laughs> yeah. You can take the boy out of Fife, etc., etc. But that is it for this part. We've got one more part to go this week. We're going to be back talking some Canadian Premier League and salaries after this. Hi, I'm Marcel de Jong, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. He's got his bloodshot eye on your sister, this rebel in rouge, this howling hipster. He's always in the dark, but he knows his way around. He's always talking pish, but he thinks he's so profound. Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's a old favourite band of mine, former Artist of the Month as well, another Scottish band of course, Arab Strap. With a song called Here Comes Comus, it's their new single, the third one taken from their upcoming album, As Days Get Dark, it's out on March 5th. It's their seventh studio album, but their first one since 2005. Really, really looking forward to that. It should be an absolute cracker. But for this final part of the show, we're going to turn our attentions back to Canada and to the the Canadian Premier League. I'd hoped to kind of chat about this before, but last week's show was obviously a bumper three-hour show, so this was one of the parts that we we actually had to cut out. But before we get into the main thing of what, what, what I talk about here... Great news, the Canadian Players Football Association has been accepted into the ranks of FIFA Pro this week. They attended the virtual FIFA Pro conference and they've been accepted into that now. Great step forward for the union and just legitimises them, really, considering the fact that the, the league still have not officially recognised them and entered into to regular chats with them. Great step forward for them, Zach. It, totally, it is. Um, does FIFA does FIFA Pro have any way to expedite that process or to put pressure on the league or FIFA or through the CSA? I don't really think officially okay. they do, but the pressure's ramped up because they are officially recognised. Yeah. They're in with the MLSPA, we're in with the English PFA and, and stuff like that. And it's still baffles me and we've talked about reasons possibly why that the, the league 
are not wanting to to really recognize them and i kind of feel it's inevitable that it's going to happen and you just want them to do it before it maybe goes to the courts and they they, yeah. they do get forced to do it yeah it can't go that it can't go that route it would be bad it'd be very bad in the the current financial climate you have to feel that the, the league is operating under as well and what we want to talk about for the, the rest of this part is that there's been a, a couple of articles written about this recently. Uh, Dwayne Rollins was one of the first guys to do it in, in his 24th minute newsletter that, that he's doing now. And he, he's pieced this together by speaking to a number of players and people around the, the league. So I'm not saying it's 100% accurate. So you still take these figures as, as what they were. People talking to Dwayne about it. But from things that I've also heard, then things tie up. And other people have heard this as well. And Northern Tribune's done an article about this and the unions talked a, a little bit about some of these things as well. And this is all around players' salaries in the CPL. Now, we've talked a lot already this year about players' salaries in Major League Soccer, etc., etc. Now... The breakdown that, that Dwayne gives for player salaries in the Canadian Premier League are as follows. If you're a U Sport player, you get $10,000 a year. A domestic rookie, 10000 to 12500 A player with some previous professional experience, 15000 to 20000 An established player, 18000 to 25000 Again, you can maybe wonder what what is class as established. Star domestic player, thirty thousand to thirty five thousand. Again, what classes as a star domestic player? Uh, Marco Bustos potentially, uh, Ben Fisk potentially. International player, thirty five thousand plus housing. Now, let's just let those figures kind of sinking a, a little bit with you at home and as that happens let's just get your initial thoughts on on those figures zach from from what you've previously heard as well yeah i mean i've heard of, i've heard about the some of the u-sport uh contracts being uh low i think this might i can't remember if this is exactly what i'd heard or it was it was in that range let's put it like that yeah though some of those aren't exactly what i'd heard but again Definitely in the range. In the range, uh, I'm a little surprised. Like this is yeah, this is not a max, right? Because there's got to be someone making more than thirty five thousand. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. So um, it's interesting to, to hear that they also get housing, <laughs> considering we know what it what a an interesting topic that's been in connection to the league over the you know the two three years. Uh, the things have been in, in conversation. Well, yeah. I mean, there there's players that we know throughout the league that are sharing the house with other players. I, oh, yeah. I think like when we when we spoke to, to Ben Fisk last year, I think he was in the house with three Ottawa players. Yeah. I other teams I know there's been like four to six players sharing accommodation. Mainly the the young guys that, that's on teams. It's the only way that's it's really affordable to them. Totally. Um it, it's it's quite it's quite scary figures really when you think Places like Victoria, not a cheap place to live. No. Hamilton, that area, York, not cheap places to live. No, not at all. Um, yeah, you, you, 
you wonder how they're getting by and we know that some of some of them are not getting by getting yeah. by well, um, I mean, there's you... been a couple of players recently that's decided to quit because they want to focus on other careers sensibly, in my opinion, if that's what they're getting. Because the other part about these figures coming out is these are these amounts are paid to them while the season is on. So if you kind of say April to October and out with that, they have to claim EI. Yeah, that's weird. Or obviously they can get a loan deal somewhere in, in Europe and, and get paid there. I, I guess for... A lot of guys in the CPL, it's their first experience of a professional contract. So they're happy to take anything initially yeah. because they want to... It's the risk versus reward, I guess. Yeah. You're taking that gamble on yourself. You're betting on yourself. We talked about that with Eric Curtado in part two. You're betting on yourself to play out your skin and get a better contract either in the league, in MLS, or a deal overseas. That yeah. is what you're betting on. And I think, too, like, I, I see the both sides to all this, right? Like, it's you, the league is supposed to be a place where Canadians who never had a chance to play have the opportunity to play in Canada and to further develop their game or further, or further their career or end their career, whatever. Like, whatever. It's, it, it has to be concerning that two, like I, I'm going to probably mess up the names here, but two of the players who have, who have re, re, quote unquote retired um, are guys who I think most people think have upside, right? Luke, Lucas Gasparato is one, right? The center back from York. Oh, he's a third one then. Oh, and then Dylan, is it Dylan Carrera? Yeah. And there was another one this morning that I've been trying to, for the life of me, find a tweet. I can't remember who it is or what team he played for, but it was well, somebody that had made 30 appearances in CPL well, so far. Lucas Gasparato, I think, has more than the ability to play this level, like for sure. And Dylan Carrero, he was from Valor, right? And I know, I heard yep. people speak very highly of him. I think his family had a, a good relationship with the supporters in, in the province of Manitoba. But... um yeah, so like that's concern, like that should be concerning, and that is why, like this is another. If you're an outside, I dare I say, objective observer, you look at something like that, and that should probably tell you, yeah, like they need to have, uh, players need to have a union, players need to have a say in uh, some of the things that are going into their contracts and their, you know, abilities on what they can make. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's concerning, but then the other side of the coin is we know that these, uh, we know that some of the owners anyways are not super deep pocketed or they have limited funds as in, you know, the thinking about Winnipeg, um, uh, you know, Valor with, you know, them being owned by the, the trust that runs the, the pigskin team and stuff. Um, not that their pockets aren't, don't have some depth to them, but they're not, they're not deep in the, the way we would traditionally think about football clubs. Um, and so it's, it, it, yeah, it's all a little bit concerning because well, it's all a little bit concerning for me because the long-term hope is for this to be a self-sustaining, healthy, developing, growing football league that uh, makes sense 
you know, in all the checks, all the boxes, the development one, the financial one for the, for the clubs, for the players, for everyone <laughs> around it. Um, and we're, you know, we're seeing some of the, the growing pains, if you will, or the, yeah, I guess growing pains is probably the best way to put it. See, I understand in a lot of ways, like the money is not in the league right now. And you look at something like if a U-sport player is getting 10,000, you can say, well, he is still a college player. He hasn't signed a pro deal. He's going back to college. It's just some summer, summer job money. But you look at some of these other figures and you have to think, how are you going to attract the quality that you want into the league? How are you going to attract Canadian players that are overplaying in Europe back to the league? Now, not all leagues play well. We heard that Bjorn Jonsson saying that in Portugal he was getting a crap amount of money, but then in Bulgaria they offered him a ton of money. So some leagues in Europe are paying good money. The, th the thing with me is you've got to give people a standard of living and you've got to give people a living wage, something that you're not taking advantage of. It, it still smacks of like they're saying, well... It's, it's the philanthropic side. It's we're, we're giving you guys a league to call your own, a league to play in. If that's what they're getting, then it's not ideal. I, I spoke to a Canadian player that got offered a deal in USL. I won't say who it was or what the club was, but it was the amount that he was offered. Can't remember if it was thirty-five or thirty-eight thousand American. And he turned it down because he said, I, the standard of living, I can't afford that. And, I mean, if you're talking, say, 35 American, that's like, what, I don't know, 45 to 50 Canadian? That's still way more than your highest pair in those things. So no wonder Canadians are still choosing to go and play in USL because they're still getting a higher wage than they would get by far in the CPL. Yeah, to totally. I totally, yeah. It's, it's... Uh... Yeah, th these two or three examples uh, show us that they're going to lose some of their most potentially talented players because they're not paying them enough, and th that's a problem. I again, I'm not saying the immediate answer is everyone should get more money, but it is something the league, if they don't recognize, they need to recognize, and they need to be um, they need to be charting a, a pathway forward that makes sense for them and is going to enable them to actually achieve what they're longing to achieve. I, I don't know if the long-term thinking is that look, we know there's always going to be people that are going to play in this league, but again, it boils down to, I, I want I want this league to succeed. So obviously you can't go splashing money about left, right and centre in the early days, especially during a pandemic. I totally get that. And I totally get why you're wanting to keep salaries a little bit low. But to grow this league, you have to grow people's enthusiasm for it, people's excitement for it. And by people, I'm not meaning the hardcore fans that are already into it. Your general footballing public, your TFC fans, your Whitecaps fans, your Montreal fans, fans that don't watch those teams just now but just like football. All those kind of things is who you all, all those kind of people is who you're needing to, to attract. And if you haven't got the quality playing in that league, 
you're not going to attract them in the numbers that you want. You're not going to get the one soccer subscription that that they need to, to keep that as a going concern. You're not going to get the TV deals. It's a, it's a vicious circle, really. But those figures stunned me a little bit. Not as much because of murmurs that I've, I've heard. But some of them definitely stunned me. But and as you said, there's got to be some players in the league that's on way more than that maximum 35,000. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then, I mean, uh, another offshoot of this is then how how because we know how it was in MLS locker rooms when when the salaries got announced and there was yeah, this is why they're not releasing the the salaries publicly, yeah. of course. Which is something you think a union would change? Yes, I'm sure they would be be certainly pushing for that. Ah, uh, it's 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 horrible to see, but I don't see any way out of it right now because the money's just simply not there. That That's that's the thing. The money is not in the game in this country unless you've got some really, really big-name businessmen that are prepared to, to lose a lot of money. I don't see this changing anytime soon. And I, I've enjoyed the CPL and the quality of it. I still think it is good quality. You just you want to keep the players there. You've seen how many players have gone to, to Europe on loan. Some of them are meant to be coming back. Some of them might not come back. Once these guys get a taste over there and speak to players over there and see what the salaries are like over there, it's going to be going to be tough to keep players in this league for more than two years. Yeah, because I remember even MLS players. Uh, well, let's not use names. So I remember MLS players being like, like back to year one in MLS where there was a number of internationals came in uh, and I remember some of them and they were getting criticized for their MLS salary. And they were like, this is like nothing mm. compared to what you make in Europe. Like what I'm making here. I don't understand how people are complaining about what I'm making. Like, sure. I know I'm not contributing maybe as much as I would like and I've, or I've had injuries or whatever this there, you know, the circumstances were, but they're like, they were like, are you, are you kidding me? Like my wage here is nothing. And it's that, not, that's not, that's not, that's not that wasn't at the upper end of the, the yeah. scale. It's like, that's how you've struggled to bring back North American players that are playing in Europe back to MLS. It's just, they can get so much more. There's the balance of, do you want to be at home? Not everybody, like not every young guy wants to leave his family and friends and, and go and play in Europe, but they do want to play football. So you've got to get a happy medium. I just hope something changes that these guys get a lot more because... I, We've all heard stories, I'm sure, anyone that knows players that are in the CPL or, of players getting mucked around with contracts, players not having bonuses paid that, that they were promised, players finding out what another teammate is actually on and going, um, how come he's on that and I'm contributing all this and I'm not on that? So, yep, there's a, there's a lot still to be ironed out. Just wanted to have a little bit of chat about that in this show the Canada Players Football Association Union are wanting to get all the Canadian international players involved in this union as well now we've talked about players getting released for international duty and how the Whitecaps are going to get hit hard by Canadian players in particular getting called up for international duty throughout this year now you look at the She Believes Cup and you'll see that there was a number of European based female players that weren't released for Canada because they're playing in Europe just now because of the pandemic and FIFA have it that, oh, 
If it's more than seven days quarantine, clubs don't have to release their players, even if it's during a FIFA window. Something I found out this week is a number of American players that are playing in Europe have it written into their contract that they have to get released for international duty no matter what. Now, a Canadian player was asked if they had that in their contract and they were like, no, I didn't know that was something you could do. That's where a union would be really handy and benefit the player in that regard. Absolutely. That, remi- that reminds me of Eric, of Eric Astley. Uh, in, in, when uh, he came here, he didn't know because the system is so different in MLS than to Europe that you could have a no-trade clause put in your contract as a, a designated player because he was used to a system where they have to you, you the player, have to agree yeah. to whatever the move is. And so... Uh, I mean, we, we've told this story before, but, you know, when he found out that was the reality, he he requested that. And, of course, they denied it to him because they, from the get-go, uh, had told Martin Rennie that you can get rid of Eric Hasley and David Acumento and bring in your replacements, which were Kenny Miller and Barry Robson. Yeah. Kenny is a quality dude. I, I really appreciate Kenny Miller. He was... He was um, he was very generous with his time. He and... was undervalued here, I, I oh, believe. Yeah. And I th- it'd be good to actually catch up with him, see how he's doing down in Oz and being assistant to Carol and moving about between the clubs down there and stuff like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe reach out to Kenny, see if he wants to, to come on the show. I still love to get Carol on the show, but we'll see. See if you can work your magic on that mm-hmm. if you're still in touch with him. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. But that is it for this episode of the AFT and Soccer Show. Thank you for listening all the way through again. We'll be back soon. But before that, just let everyone know where they can find you online, Zach. For me, it's at ZacharyAM on Twitter, although I haven't been checking in there lately. Um, that's where you can get find me when I am on Twitter. You can get me on Twitter at AFT in Canada. Read all our stuff away from the numbers, AFTN.ca. Give us a follow on Instagram, AFT and Soccer, and please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Turn on notifications as well if you want. YouTube.com backslash AFT in Canada. We have got a number of video series planned this year. Some fun ones. We're going to have some quizzes. We're going to be doing our footballing board game that we're going to be planning for a while that the pandemic kind of put the kibosh in, but... Trying to see if we can get something set up for that and a few other fun things as well. And if you're not a subscriber to our AFT and Extra podcasts, please consider doing that. I know times are hard for many of us just now. It's $30 a year, $3 a month. You'll get all the details on AFTN.ca. You'll get quality extra podcasts delivered to your mailbox and you're supporting AFTN at the same time. But we'll be back next week with more football chat and I've got a couple of fun interviews hopefully lined up for this week. Until then, thanks for listening, stay safe, stay healthy, and mourn the caps. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.
Et...